The language used by Curtis Sliwa is replete with spoonerisms, malaprops, and fractured phrases, and is not a reflection of the language that you should use in your normal conversations. It is Sliwanics. And a glossary of its words and definitions are posted on WABCRadio.com. On the weekend, take a journey with the people's mayor. Curtis Lewa is a politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. Although you beat the rap, claiming uh, Peter Townsend that you were researching pedophilia when they found all that pedophile stuff on your hard drive, and then of course Keith Moon. But this song, I know that I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles. It's magic in my eyes. And the reason that we're playing this song to open up the six-hour extravaganza to the break of dawn, and remember, nobody's going to sleep to the break of dawn. You're going to end up listening to all six hours, even if you have to be parallel to the ground, even if you have your earbuds on, even if you have to be somewhat quiet, because whoever you're sleeping next to is already cutting Z's and doesn't want to be disturbed. Well, I, I understand. But this is not disturbing radio. In fact, it's now heard in 38 states, parts of Canada, a sliver of Europe, and right on down at Davy Jones's locker between the Bahamas and Bermuda. The 50,000 powerful watts of sound reverberating across this nation and across this globe because of the modern technology. Simply, all you have to do is download an app on your iPhone, your smartphone, and you can hear it crystal clear anywhere in the world. Other than, I think, with the penguins in Antarctica. Oh, it's National Penguin Day. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't think you can hear it in Antarctica. But if you have a uh, stream on your laptop computer or your worktop computer, you can hear it crystal clear anywhere. And if for any reason you uh, were not able to hear any of the show or you happen to slip into a deep sleep and then were woke, shook up to listen to the rest of the show to the break of dawn, you can always hit it on the comeback side as you hear it on the podcast that is posted of this very show at wabcradio.com. That's wabcradio.com and all the other shows in the vast WABC vaults. Once again, uh, a complete turnabout from Frank Morano, the worst side of the other side of midnight that you typically hear from Monday through Fridays, 1 to 5. That is when he decides to show up because he's taking quite a bit of time off Broadway, Bill Lee, and you know... We ate up his mileage and acreage and talk time to the fact of uh, a guy who at one time was busting his buttons and bridges with pride. He's number one in ratings at WABC. Well, you can't live on what you did yesterday. You have to do better each and every day, each and every night, each and every hour, each and every minute. And that is the goal of what this broadcast does. And we have assembled, although uh, we are frugal. And last week, we actually, uh, when Avery was on a special assignment, hush, hush, mush, mush, sent there by the management and the ownership of WABC, we still don't know what Avery was up to when he was MIA on uh, Sunday morning. But it was uh, Broadway Billy, 40-year veteran at WCBS-FM, still mourning the loss of Scott Shannon in the morning. I don't know why he's retired. He's not dead. Not He's probably playing golf every morning along with Joe Carsey in the afternoon, and then responding to a SOS symbol I sent out over a year ago to come on over and help us on the active-minded side, side, the AM side. And uh, Broadway Bill, we, uh, well, we knocked it out of the box last Sunday morning. It was just the two of us. But Avery has made his triumphant re- return. And no doubt in 24 hours, he will have bisected and dissected the week of Frank Morano on the other side of midnight, the funniest hour in all of radio. And we are prepared to laugh our asses off and to get a great belly laugh. But we got a program right now that we got to deal with. And in many instances, it's somewhat prophetic. If you uh, happen to be listening to us when the ball was dropping uh, in Times Square to welcome in the new year 2023, and uh, naturally, uh, kicking out the old year 2022, oh, my You heard a live and local program here that went global. Hosted by yours truly and my wife, Nancy, and our cat, Loki, the run to the litter of the 18 rescue cats that are attentively listening in our Upper West Side apartment as I speak. And then Rita Cosby had joined us along with our owners and operators, John and Margot Katsimatidis. And out of the many calls that we fielded from across the world, in fact, it was Margot Katsimatidis who remarked, wow, all the number of people who are calling in who are sight-challenged. She was amazed. And it was a panoply of different people who said that they grew up listening to talk radio because obviously all they could do is listen to TV and TV is meant to be watched. 
because it doesn't create the theater of the mind of this great thing of ours, which is the most intimate form of broadcasting that has ever been created in our lifetimes. Whether you believe it was Marconi on the Italian side or Tesla on the Serbian side, this thing has withstood and outlasted many of the uh, pontificators who have said that AM cannot survive, and yet... Against all odds, it has survived and will continue to survive, even with Tesla deciding that he's no longer going to install AM radios in his electric cars and the others who are trying to imitate his success in developing their electric car production, whether it's GM, Chrysler, Ford, whether it's Hyundai in Korea, hi, 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 or Toyota in Japan, or the European makes and models coming off their assembly lines in Germany. They have opted, when it comes to an electric car, not to install AM radios. Well, that is a mistake. Because we found out on uh, New Year's morning, with a live program here and subsequent to that, many other programs, that we are a sanctuary, we are a reserve for the many site challenged out there. And we were talking about it at great length for the next few days. And lo and behold, what happened last week affected my own wife, Nancy. As you know, she's a hipster, a millennial. I have no idea how old she is. Uh, she is very guarded about her age, the same way that Frank Morano on the other side of midnight will say, hey, you can ask me any question under the sun. And then when all of a sudden people ask him about his age, he shuts down. And he doesn't have a press uh, spokesperson to speak on his behalf. Likewise, my wife. So we were coming from an event, I don't remember quite from where. And we were taking a cab back to our Upper West Side apartment uh, to take care of our 18 rescue cats. When all of a sudden, Nancy asked that we stop the cab. And I said, what's wrong? I figured maybe she was going to throw up. Maybe she was having some kind of uh, an allergic reaction to anything that we had just consumed prior to that. And she said, no, I gotta, we got to get out. I can't see. And all of a sudden, Nancy was like, could not see. It's almost like she was experiencing being Helen Keller. And we walked a few blocks, and she looked around, and she said, I can't see. I can see various streams of light. But you could see that she was very perplexed, very concerned. And then I hustled her home and immediately called up Dr. Mikolos, who is always available 24-7, 365, no matter what the medical emergency is. He happens to be an ophthalmologist himself, ironically. The two other most infamous and prominent ophthalmologists in the world are Rand Paul, that's right, the junior senator from Kentucky, who believes in the cash crop there, marijuana, as a libertarian and uh, as opposed to Mitch McConnell, who uh, loves to swim in the Kentucky bourbon, the senior said in it. Uh, and then, of course, there's Bashir Assad, who is the uh, dictator for life of Syria. He actually was the son of Halafez Assad, and he happens to be an ophthalmologist also. Well, I wasn't going to be taking uh, Nancy to uh, Bashir Assad in Damascus, nor to Rand Paul down in Lexington, Kentucky. Instead, under the instructions of Dr. Mikolos, I took Nancy to uh, Columbia Presbyterian, where there was a a, a, a veteran 
of dealing with these kinds of eye emergencies, a doctor of German heritage. I remember we walked into the office. It was towards the end of the day. Thank God we got there in time because he was just about ready to leave. When all of a sudden he shows up, he comes out of the, the front door. He's wearing an ascot. It looks like a scene out of a Humphrey Bogart movie. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was a, it was just a great scene. And he did a preliminary review of what is plaguing Nancy's eyesight. And he said, boy, you've got severe uh, scarring of your cornea. And uh, you got to be very careful. You could lose your eyesight. And so it brought us, uh, Broadway Bill Lee, uh, to uh, what I was dealing with uh, just the other morning. I was trying to be a good husband and take my wife Crosstown on the Crosstown bus over to the Hospital of Eye and uh, Nose and Ear. When all of a sudden we were crossing the street, and all of a sudden this bicyclist came out of nowhere. You know, they have these electric bikes. They got people who are like Pee Wee Herman. They're cycling on a big chief, uh, big uh, Schwinn bicycle, a 10-speed English racer. So many bicycles out, and then suddenly it just smashed right into me. I mean, I had to take the blow because uh, Nancy was holding on to my arm. She was like the Helen Keller type at that moment. She could not see. And, I mean, I got conked right, right, I mean, as solidly as you could be conked. I spun around. Did not want to drag my wife down in the process, so I had to somehow try to remain stable. And I'll never forget this guy getting off of the Crosstown bus saying, ah, Slee will be all right. He's been shot multiple times. This is nothing. And let's face it, my neighbors in the Upper West Side who have never had any love for me. As you know, they're very liberal, very progressive, uh, more in love with AOC, all our crazy Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, leader of the Democratic Socialists of America and the Justice Warriors. They were like, eh, let's just step over him. Uh, uh, lucky he uh, survived. He's a lucky guy. And I am telling you, ever since then, I, it's like it rattled every bone in my body. I had to actually uh, go uh, for about three hours and just lay down, which is unusual, as you know, for me, because I couldn't think straight from the tip of my nose to the tip of my toes. But what the hell? We're ready to plunge forward. And in dealing with all of this, as uh, Nancy tries to recover from her loss of sight, which is very shocking, and I know that many of you out there listening have had similar situations, like my husband-in-law, former Governor David Patterson. I called my husband-in-law because I said, hey, is my wife, marry her. And he did. Uh, he married Mary, and he is the stepfather to my oldest son, Anthony. But uh, he was sight-challenged from birth, and he talked to me uh, on many occasions, he was actually my afternoon partner when I was at AM 970, The Answer. I was doing AM Drive and PM Drive for four years. That's four years of my life. I'll never get back. Uh, but he was my partner in the afternoons. And he talked about how he had grown up uh, mostly living out in Long Island. I think it was Hempstead or somewhere about there, in which he would be listening to the radio morning, noon, and night because he was a side challenge. Like, like the big gambling guy, Steve Wynn, you know, who loves Macau, who loves the Red Chinese, but has gambling holdings in Vegas and is always competing in other venues. And there are other very famous and infamous site challenge people, but probably the most famous of all, Helen Keller. And it reminded me of Helen Keller because 
when I had gone up to Plymouth Rock, uh, Massachusetts, at a very young age, I think it was five or six, I had gotten into old Betsy, the 54 Ford with the wood paneling and the white walls. My mother had summoned my uh, older sister, Alita, and my younger sister, Maria, and we were going to go up and help my cousin, Cochise, uh, as it was his nickname, his acting name, better known as Jimmy Lonegro, because he had purchased, along with his partner, Leon, a summer stock theater in Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. And so we all uh, boarded into the uh, station wagon. My father was out at sea. He was to join us later. And we went to look at this barn, uh, which was uh, supposed to be a summer stock theater. And we assisted Jimmy Lonegro and all of his friends and associates and actors and actresses who wanted to get involved in summer stock to clean it up and get it ready for the summer performance for people all along Plymouth Rock and Cape Cod who would want to come for a night to see either a musical or a drama. And the very first drama put on was the Helen Keller story, The Miracle Worker. And it was the first time I was ever on the stage. Myself and my my youngest sister, Maria, we were on the stage cutting out these paper dolls. I forget what the scene was. It was one of the opening scenes with the safety scissors, the rounded scissors. And that's how I got my uh, dramatic debut, as I did that night after night after night after night. And I think my older sister, Alita, had a, a part involved. But it was interesting because... I learned quite a bit about Helen Keller at that time and never would think that there were listeners of ours out there who have experienced exactly what Helen Keller went through in her entire life. In fact, she spent a good part of it in Forest Hills. I was to learn that later on in life. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, can suddenly, like in the case of my uh, wife Nancy, experience the loss of sight that we take for granted and then understand how how all of a sudden you have to struggle just to do the basics. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And so it harkens me back to thinking about the Helen Keller story that I was taught at a very young age. And as I said, uh, was able to get up on that stage at the Plymouth Rock Theater for my cousin Jimmy Lonigo and perform in The Miracle Worker which I remember later on seeing a film under the same title and then visiting the American Foundation for the Blind that I know that Helen Keller was was associated with for many, many years during that time, touring the United States and traveling all over the world, around the globe, advocating with those with vision loss, something, again, we just take for granted. And I know that she had written a number of books, Done hundreds of speeches, essays on all kinds of topics ranging from animals to Mahatma Gandhi and campaigning constantly for those people who had these disabilities. But she also went on. Uh, she didn't let that handicap prevent her from getting involved in the women's suffragette movement, labor rights, world peace. And in fact, uh, this may float some of your boats out there because you, uh, always have a tendency to uh, malign anybody who's a socialist or a communist or thinks differently than the mass majority of most of us. But in 1909, Helen Keller joined the Socialist Party of America, and she was a founding member of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Quite an interesting life for somebody who was sight-challenged. 
And I remember in taking the Long Island Railroad to that uh, iconic old stop in Forest Hills where you can see the stadium as you pass by, where at one time U.S. Open uh, uh, was played uh, in August and September. Uh, tennis uh, matches are still played there, but not at the uh, the premium level. They're now played at Flushing Meadow Park, the U.S. Open. But also the concerts that are renewed uh, there. This is also the anniversary where the monkeys were put together as sort of like Spinal Tap out in Los Angeles, who eventually were to premiere at the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. They were one of the opening acts. Uh, not the opening act, the main act. And it was uh, a guitarist. Jimi Hendrix from Seattle, who was their opening act, who actually got booed off the stage because people were there to see the monkeys. The monkeys. Oh, we're going to be discussing all of that. But while I was walking around Forest Hills, you can see the plaques in honor of Helen Keller. Apparently, she had spent a good deal of time in one of those large buildings uh, that you can see right next to the Forest Hills Long Island Railroad Station and spent a good deal of the time working on behalf of the American Foundation for the Blind. And I remember reading in a, uh, I think it was a magazine, that while in her 30s, she had had a love affair, became secretly engaged and defied her teacher and family by attempting an elopement with a man she loved. In fact, he was the fingerspelling socialist Peter Fagan, a young Boston Herald reporter, who was sent to Helen's home to act as her uh, private secretary when her lifelong companion Anne had fallen in. It was quite interesting because I oftentimes, in uh, having read about that situation, compared it to uh, what was uh, told oh, not too long ago, uh, in fact, in a few hours, uh, Cousin Brucey uh, will be on after Vinnie Madunio. Vinnie Madunio begins the entertainment cycle, 5 to 6, and then it's Cousin Brucey from 6 to 10, followed by Tony Orlando without Dawn. Uh, but it was interesting because he had interviewed uh, oh, Connie Francis. And Connie Francis had discussed how her biggest regret in her entire life is that she had not eloped with Bobby Darren. We talk about elopement because elopement was common years ago. We don't even use that term any longer. But here it was, and, uh, excuse me, in this particular case, Helen Keller was prepared, blind as she was, sight-challenged as she was, to elope with a man who had come from the Boston Herald to be a private secretary uh, when her lifelong companion, uh, Anne, fell ill. And then to hear almost within the same uh, scope of time, Connie Francis discussed that the biggest regret in a very successful lifetime of singing and entertaining uh, the masses was that she didn't take the offer of Bobby Darren to elope. She had decided to speak to her father in a strict Italian family, wanted his permission. And he said, where is that guy? I'd like to bend his leg and stuff it in his pocket, Bobby Darren. And they never, never did uh, marry. They never did elope. But elopement was something that had taken place, I would say, quite often uh, in the previous century. It's almost never heard of now. I mean, when's the last time you ever heard that anybody eloped? No. But back then, that was a phrase that I would commonly hear when I was growing up, that, oh, uh, Phil and Sally had eloped because they didn't have the permission of their parents to get married 
So they went off to Las Vegas, got a quickie marriage at the Elvis Temple, Elvis Temple, uh, Elvis Church. And then, if necessary, could get a quickie divorce there. Or they could go to the Dominican Republic and get a quickie divorce there. I mean, there were so many things that were happening back then that you don't even hear about now. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Because the one thing that makes this so different than the other programs you hear on WABC is that this is interactive radio. This is about you speaking, not listening to a whole series of guests being interviewed. Uh, I don't find that kind of talk radio very interesting at all. Uh, I really believe that you all have more to say, that you have more stories to tell, that you've had more personal experiences than any guests. Guests, uh, you know, they're in control. They know what they're going to say. They don't... Uh, they don't ever really uh, uh, budge themselves from a, uh, a script that they already have pre-recorded in their mind. They stick to the script. And to me, that doesn't make for good radio. That's regurgitation radio. It's my opinion. That's why, uh, you know, a podcast, hey, a podcast is a podcast. It's not interactive radio. You don't have people calling up. Uh, I believe that this is your turn to be heard. It is that one part of the broadcasting day in which we're not going to wonks, we're not going to guests, we're not going to friends, we're not going to foes, we're going to all of you wherever you may be all over the world. And because we are a global entity, when the sun goes down, I take full advantage of that with the 50,000 powerful watts of sound. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We're also going to do a tribute to uh, David Crosby, who passed away. As you know, I went to the mat for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and, uh, of course, uh, Joni Mitchell and their battles with Spotify, remember, and the musclehead Joe Rogan. Uh, I stood with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and Joni Mitchell. And as you know, uh, David Crosby uh, prepared a very special song for my version of The Other Side of Midnight. It was uh, a really a great tribute as compared to the uh, sort of, uh, what can we call it, garage band uh a music that Frank Morano will play on his version of The Other Side of Midnight, which is Monday through Fridays from 1 to 4. So let's get those um, phone lines percolating. This is your time to be heard. And uh, also the other thing I want to ask is this term red herring. I've, I've heard it about like 50 times this week alone. That's a red herring. What the hell does red herring mean? I mean, people say, oh, that that's a real red herring. Do they really know what that means? Red herring? It's like, did you ever have herring? Did you ever look at it? Is it a red herring? I mean, I, I, I don't get that. What the hell does that mean? Does it mean it's a communist? Does it mean it's a socialist? You know, I'm figuring socialist is pink. A communist is red. What does red herring mean? Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. It's another side of midnight, 77 WABC. Oofa! It's another side of midnight. Now, to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC, here's Curtis Lewa. Wrapped up like a deuce, another runner in the night. Blinded by 
Oh, poor Nancy, blinded by the light. The only time she could see is in uh, total pitch darkness. And slowly but surely, she's been given the uh, therapeutic uh, method she has to take to uh, get back on track with strong sight. No more contacts. Nope, no nope. Contacts just irritated her corneas, caused growths that have prevented her from seeing uh, correctly. Uh, she has ordered uh, prescription glasses, you know, like the old uh, Coca-Cola bottles, you know, and you see those glasses, it's sort of like, ooh. <laughs> but it's the only way she can see, because if not, she's been blinded by the light. And then as I was dutifully escorting her across the street on 86 in Central Park West. Yeah. Those guys with those bicycles. Although in this case it was a woman slammed right into me and rattled my skeleton from the tip of my nose to the tip of my uh, toes. And uh, being the Upper West Side where they don't love me and I don't love them. It was no empathy, uh, no uh, no compassion at all. Guys getting off the Crosstown bus. Yes, Leeway, he's been shot before. Now, this is no biggie. No biggie. Man, you talk about people who just, when they don't like you, they don't like you. You know, I bet you if I was on fire in the middle of the street, they wouldn't relieve themselves on me to put out the flames, right? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that was on purpose or whatever. I, You know, I've had more trouble crossing the street of late, as you know, a year ago, three days before the election involving Eric Adams at that time, who beat me. Three days, I'm running here to WABC. We had purchased an hour of programming from 12 to 1 because I wasn't on the air during the campaign. And uh, I got clipped right outside of Radio City Music Hall. Yellow cab, I could have swore was Comrade Bill de Blasio smoking a dube who was driving in and Eric Adams who was his passenger. But you remember, I picked myself up, I ran here to WABC, I didn't miss a beat. I went to the hospital afterwards to Lennox, so uh, broke uh, two bones in my left elbow. But in one, in a way, getting clobbered by that bicycle, I mean, full hit. Had to avoid making sure Nancy wasn't hit. She couldn't even see. I took one for Nancy, right? At least uh, that's the way I'm going to tell the story. The reality is the bicyclist just hit me. I didn't see the bicyclist coming. And certainly Nancy didn't see the bicyclist coming. She couldn't see. Anyway, our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Sherry in the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Sherry. Hi, Curtis. Of course, no one knows New York like you do, but I'm calling to thank you. Uh, believe it or not, it's a difficult time for my family. We lost my mother this week. Mm. Yeah, mm. she was going to be 101 in February. Uh, so I want to thank you. I turned on the radio to listen to you, and I feel better. How's that? Also, um, hilarious asking about the red herring. I don't remember the origin of it. 
And last of all, uh, my older sister <laughs> is going to really appreciate uh, the, those factoids about Connie Francis and Bobby Barron. So thank you for that, too. Well, now, notice, you've heard that term often, too, a red herring, right? You've heard it said and repeated yeah. over yeah. and over. Yeah. I don't think most people understand what it means. <laughs> I think it means, in general, like a distraction. I first learned of it in the movie or the show Clue, the murder mystery. Something's a red herring, but I didn't. I didn't have the energy to look it up. But by the way, uh, if uh, a, a herring is red, does that mean that it's ready to be eaten? I don't eat anything with a face, and you and Nancy should appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know. I yeah, don't no, no, you're right. Nancy, uh, she can, uh, She looks at fish. She goes, no, no, I can't eat fish. Uh, she doesn't. Any of that. Boy, she's as close to being a vegan as you could be. Uh, I'm working on becoming a vegetarian. Slow process. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Let's go to Brian, who's calling from Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Brian? Yes, hello, Brian. Brian is very tepid in coming to the telephone. I think he's uh, sort of coordinating in his mind what he's going to say. There you are, Brian. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, what's up, Paul? This is Brian from Pat Hyde. All right, you got to talk right into the phone, and you got to turn that radio down because we're hearing the reverb. It's bouncing all over the place. I'm sorry. I can't see. Ah, so you're sight challenged. You're blind. Yeah, I, I called you last time on the, on the white boy from Crown Heights at the Black Wave. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you've been uh, blind how much of your life? Not much. I had a stroke in 2014. Now, what was it like for you having had your sight, perfect sight before that, and then all of a sudden with a stroke, no longer being able to see? How shocking was that to your system? Well, I couldn't move. I was paralyzed first, but then, like, scary, scary. Yeah, well, that's the way my wife was, even though her sight is returning. I've never seen her so frightened before. She grabbed onto me. We, we got out of that cab. She goes, Curtis, I can't see anything. I can't see anything. And so naturally, uh, I had to calm her down because uh, I wasn't assuming it was anything permanent. I just thought it was maybe something that was going on in her system or a reaction maybe to some food she had eaten. But, boy... It, I could see how scary it was for her. I can imagine what it was like for you, compounded with the uh, the stroke, Ryan. Yeah, I hit my head in the, to- in the tub. Now, question, uh, because you've lost your sight, how important is radio to you now? Huh, very important, because I can't see it, but I can hear it. Yeah, and I, uh, I, you know, we became so aware of that with the start of the new year. With so many people like yourself, Ryan, who had called about the importance of radio when you are sight-challenged, when you can't see, and how much you depend on this. Oh, yeah, let's go to uh, Mordecai, who's calling from Central Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Mordecai. Curtis, good evening. Hope everything's all, I hope everything's well. Well, wait, wait, hold on a second. Well, hold on. Mordecai, you obviously haven't been uh, listening uh, about 36 hours ago, I'm crossing the street holding up my wife, who all of a sudden wasn't able to see, to take her across town to a hospital for eye, ear, and nose disorders. And then I get clipped by a bicycle, like out of nowhere, it smashes into me. So how do you think I'm doing, Mordecai? 
Well, Curtis, I hope that I hope that everything is well. Aside from that, I hope that everything uh, you know gets better uh, very, very quickly. And I will say a prayer for your wife, and I will also say a prayer for the bicyclist that uh, had the nerve to hit you, that had the chutzpah to hit you, because he chose the wrong person. Now, let me uh, ask you a question, to... Mordecai. I need to know who are you. Uh... Who are you dedicating that prayer in the direction of? Is it Hashem or JC? I'm dedicating it to to your wife for a speedy recovery. But who am I praying to? I'm praying to God. Ah, very good. Okay, okay. G undercut under slash D, right? Correct. All yes. right. All right. My question, though, uh, or not really question, I, I just wanted to say that um, from the woman who previously called just now, just before, I get uh, the term red herring from when I was a kid watching Scooby-Doo. That was the name of a character. That's right. That's right. Scooby-Doo, red herring. Now, you know what they're doing to Scooby-Doo, Mordecai. Have you seen the most recent adaptation of Scooby-Doo? I have heard about it. I have not seen it. Oh, my God. Transgendered, non-binary. Oh, yes. They ruined Scooby-Doo. They had to make it, oh, it had to be all-encompassing. Everybody had to be involved with Scooby-Doo. Well, to be perfectly honest, I hated Scooby-Doo, but why did they have to do that to Scooby-Doo? Scooby, 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 Scooby-Doo. Let's go to Loretta in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Loretta. Hi, good morning, Curtis. Uh, I have two experiences I can relate to. Um, I was... Uh, blind, you could say, uh, for about a year and a half. Plus, I eloped. Um, but eloping came first. Now, now explain uh, how the uh, eloping part took place. Whose idea was it, yours or your husband? I guess it was both of us. Um, I never thought I eloped. I, I thought I ran away with him. But one of the guys in my office in the 80s, this was, he said, at 18, you didn't run away from home. You didn't run away. He said, you left home. So he kind of took the guilt off of me. We had to do it that way because at 18, you need parental consent to be married in church. Now, uh, it wasn't a shotgun elopement, was it? No, no. Um, uh, I know I had a family member who, yeah, with a shotgun. But, um, no, it was because he was an older man, and no strict Italian father wants to see his baby daughter with an older man. Hmm. So we snuck around and did what we had to do, and then uh, we just, my godmother helped us. Uh, she kept my bags at her house, my suitcases, and after work, it was my first job right out of high school, so I wasn't trained for anything. I was a cashier in a store, and he wasn't making much money, and with my first check, um, I said, Stella, and this was Bionia Avenue, uh, right adjacent to the, the bus stop on Highland Boulevard. And I had feral cats. I didn't know they were feral cats. I just knew that from seven years old or so, we had 25 cats outside the house, and I had to feed them because they were hungry. And I'll bet you you didn't have any rat or mice or rodent problems. Well, actually, we had field mice because it was a dead-end street under Highland Boulevard, only two houses on the whole block, us and next door. Across the street was all woods. 
and uh, a, a mouse went up my father's leg and down. <laughs> I didn't, but I didn't see it. So we got Cleo from Jersey, a relative in Jersey, and Cleo was allowed house privileges. And that was the end of any mice. Wow. So the mouse went up and down your father's leg. Yeah, but I was a kid, so I didn't see this. Now, question, though, how old was this uh, man of your dreams who swooped you away? How old? What was the age differential between him and you? Eleven years. Ooh. And it didn't seem so much to me. I was a junior in high school when I met him, 17. He's an older man. He's cute. And uh, remember the Brooklyn Ferry? Yes, yes, going to Bay Ridge. Aha, uh-huh, that's where I met him. I had a girlfriend who lived in Bensonhurst, and I was headed home. He was headed to see his cousin in Staten Island, and I was flirting with the pretzel guy. The pretzel guy, the salted pretzel- or unsalted? Oh, salted. Oh, salted. <laughs> so now let me get this straight. The pretzel guy and this guy was 11 years your senior. Yes. Did they did they ever say to themselves, gee whiz, Loretta could be jailbait? No, I don't think it mattered to him. He was kind of like you. <laughs> um, uh, he was kind of like you. He was a rogue. Ah, a rogue. <laughs> uh, he had been in Japan and Korea. Oh, that's all you had to say. The geisha girls, right? He w- he almost married a Japanese woman, he told me. Oh. He loved her. And I said, then why didn't you marry her? And he said, well, I thought of my mother. Would she accept her? And I didn't say anything to that. I just figured, well, then you weren't all that much in love with her because if you were, you would have taken her back and married her. Yeah, well, there were there were some who did, most who did not because of that cultural separation. Men who had gone off into the Far East, as you had mentioned, in Korea and Japan, who had met women there, wanted to marry them, and then knew that there would be horrible blowback uh, if they tried to bring their war bride uh, or their bride that they had met when uh, uh, they were doing non-war duty in the Far East. Uh, there are many, many stories like that now. You know, it it's still a consideration for some, but not most. But that back then, Loretta, you remember, there was like a prohibition about that. I don't really remember. I mean, uh, my brothers were in Korea, but I don't remember. Um, he didn't tell me too much about it. I was so young and naive. I didn't ask questions, and I should have. Now, question, you were 18 by the time you eloped, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. All right. What high school had you been attending? Uh, St. Joe's. St. Oh. Joseph Hill. God, Catholic girl, and you eloped. Oh, my God, with the patent leather shoes and the pleated skirts. And where did you elope to, Loretta? Uh, I didn't know where we were going. You see, when you love someone, you trust him. Now, one of my kittens came up to the bus stop. She was a calico, right? All uh, calico cats are female. Uh, It's a freak of nature. Um, And she was about three months old. And she was giving me a look, you know, when you get the look. Yeah, yeah, the maluk here, the look. And and I said we have to take her. Now he has one bag of clothes to his name. I had a set of American tourist luggage, and all the shopping bags we could carry. And she's there looking at me. And I named them all. I kissed them all. And when one wasn't around, I would go, you know, to feed them at night. 
And I, I would say, uh, Papa, where's Cleo? Cleo didn't come to eat supper. He was the one that was allowed house privileges. And he would say, Cleo went off on a honeymoon. He'll be back in a few days. <laughs> so he was not spaded or neutered. Right. No, we didn't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, we didn't know. I, 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 I was actually a very scrawny kid as a three-year-old. They didn't say skinny. They said scrawny. Mm. And we had the milkman come a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of days a week to give us our dairy order, and there were glass quart bottles. Yeah, oh, I remember that. And they put it in the box or the rack, right? Right, right. And all the cream settled to the top. So my mother would scoop out all the cream to fatten me up. But I was giving it to the cats uh, underneath the steps. <laughs> and she would slather everything with butter, real butter. And I was giving it to them, of course. Oh, they must have loved you. Oh, the fights I got in. And um, we had Puss in Boots then. Oh, that's right, Puss in Boots. Puss in the Boots. That's right. Puss in Bo- and, and it was the size of a dog food can. Yeah, I remember. I used to pack out shelves at A&P, yeah. Puss in Boots. That's right. So one day there was no Puss in the Boots in the house. And my father... We had the old refrigerator that if you stepped on the pedal, the deep freeze would come out towards you. And on top of that was the refrigerator. So he went to the butcher for meat, which I don't really care where you go as long as we have food, right? Right. So uh, you know that white wrap that they use at the butchers? Oh, sure. He's got the steak defrosted, and there was no puss in boots. So I'm a kid. I fry filet mignon in the frying pan. And I don't know what's filet mignon. I know it's meat, and they're hungry. So I fry it up. I cut it up very small, and they ate. They loved it. And my father comes home yelling, where's the steak I had defrosted? I said, they were hungry, Papa. I had to feed them. He said, that's filet mignon. I go to the butcher. I said, I don't care. <laughs> so um, from then on, there was puss in the boots in the house. Oh, boy. Boy, that was a, a feast of a day. That your 25 cats, wow, feral cats, and that one calico came with her when she eloped. What is, uh, guy was 11 years his senior, man. Mm. He really bedazzled her. I know it's 1-800-848-9222. Now listen, wasn't it much better listening to Loretta regale us in her life, her stories of how she eloped? How the calico cat was there, and she had to take the calico cat with her, with her belongings. With this guy who was eleven years his senior. How she was flirting with the pretzel guy right on the old ferry between Staten Island and Bay Ridge, right at the age of seventeen, while going to Catholic school, wearing the uh, patent leather shoes and the pleated skirts. You're not gonna get that from a guest. Well, you think a guest would tell you that? Ah, you kidding? I, I'm here to promote a book. And I'm here to promote a service. Listen to me. I know everything. You know nothing about nothing because you haven't experienced life the way Loretta experienced life and chose to share with us. All night long, this is another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. Check this out. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC.
More cowbell. More cowbell. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, uh, another life-threatening uh, circumstance in which I avoided the Grim Reaper. Although this is not the most dangerous of the many that I faced out there, but getting slammed into by that bicycle, by that woman, and it rattling my skeleton from the tip of my toes to the tip of my nose. You know, it gave me a, a chance to just uh, ponder every few seconds as I was stung out. And my wife was clutching on to me, Helen Keller, as she has been uh, for a few days, a sight challenge. And I thought back and I said to myself, you know, I've been described as many things in my life and I'm approaching 69 years old. Uh, Let's hope I make it, March 26. I'm like a cat with nine lives, although I think I've used more than nine. I've oftentimes been described as sort of uh, like Don Quixote. I said to myself, oh, Don Quixote. And so many people talked about that book, Don Quixote. I, I never really read the book. You know what I did. I got the crypt notes. <laughs> like so many things I did in my life. But you talk to people and they say, oh, you got to read Don Quixote, one of the greatest novels of all time. And uh, so you got the protagonist there who's uh, Alonso Don Quixote. And then all of a sudden, he's got his squire, Sancho Panza, at least that's what I remember from the crib notes, roaming around La Mancha, that central region of Spain. Oh, I spent a lot of time there. I got guardian angels in Barcelona, and I'll never forget going to Toledo, which was the headquarters for Franco and the fascists. And the first time I actually saw eagles on the columns of a Catholic church and said, how could that be? And they said, well, this was the church of Franco and the fascists, Toledo. Thought it was Toledo, Ohio, right? Anyway, all the challenges that Don Quixote had, and they were entirely made up in his own mind. Remember, there was Don Quixote who would attack a group of monks, although they were not there. A flock of sheep, although they were not there. And naturally, most famously, the windmills that he believed to be gigantors. Funny. The language. The old stories of knights. And their deeds. And somehow, uh, Broadway Billy, I could relate to that Don Quixote. Because many people have said, everything I've done in my life is Don Quixote-ish. Except I'm not slaying windmills. You know, I want to slay criminals. We'll get into that later on. Anyway, let's go to uh, Matthew, who's calling. Is that from Copeg? Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Matt. Hi, Curtis. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Curtis, I just wanted to say that um, I wanted to be honest with you. The reason that you lost the mayor race was because the devil runs New York. You know, uh, I mean, Satan could have ran against you, and he would have won. And uh, it's not, you know, flesh that we're fighting against. It's spirit, you know. So, you know, it's only through Jesus that we're going to be able to take back this country. I just wanted to know your opinion on that. I. I know you're a, a believer, and so I just wanted to hear what you had to say. Ah, very interesting, Matthew. 
I was at the Polish consulate just last night. My wife was not able to uh, join me because she's full Polish, born in Greenpoint. Her father was born in Poland. Uh, her mother was born in Greenpoint, all Polish. I'm just part Polish. So I went on my own. They were sashing a new grand marshal. And, uh, wow, Avery, uh, our nighttime producer, and uh, uh, Broadway Bill Leonor was there talking to the crowd. It was Mayor Eric Adams talking to the crowd. He was there. He was he was honoring the Grand Marshal who will lead the next uh, Pulaski Day Parade, and he was talking about how he really wanted to earn the Polish votes because he knew the Polish votes went to Curtis Lee. He didn't know I was in the room. I was in the back. Mm-hmm. He had actually counted the votes, the basically the analytics. I mean, right on down to a person's ethnic group. And I said to myself, hmm. Was God on my side in that battle? I don't think so. I don't think so, Matthew. But you know something? God was on my side the other day when that bicycle came down 86th Street going full speed and then just smashed me. And I'm still feeling the effects. In fact, uh, Chris Libertini, who I hate and loathe, I despise, our imaging director here, you notice uh, we have the start of the program is the uh, broadcast from the Bernard McGurk studio. I made him do that. Oh, I got all this other. No, no. You're either going to do that or I'm going to smash every knuckle in your hand and you won't be able to do anything for quite some time. He goes, oh, you're really serious about that. I said, yeah. We got to honor Bernard McGurk. So if you notice, every show that I do from now on, not just the 12 Midday to 1 o'clock show, which is part Bill O'Reilly at the start, and then I take you the rest of the way. But every show that I do is going to have that drop about this being the Bernard McGurk studio. We all broadcast here. It's the main studio in his honor, 77 WABC Radio. And God uh, has been looking, uh, looking out for me. I will tell you. I could have suffered the same fate as Bernard McGurk because I waited too long to get my prostate cancer test, a simple prick of the finger, which any of you guys can get, starting at the age of 40. Ladies, you can nag the men in your life, children, grandchildren, a simple test starting at the age of 40. Rudy waited too long. I waited too long. We survived it. Unfortunately, Bernard McGurk did not because it metastasized to his liver. So that's why every time you hear that name, it should be a reminder. Men, you must get the prostate cancer test. 99% of it can be cured, but it has to be detected first. Do it in honor of Bernard McGurk. Check this out. On the weekend, take a journey with the people's mayor. Curtis Lewa is a politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep, and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Oh, yeah. Now, to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa.
As you know, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, song was uh, created for me as I took the back of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, Joni Mitchell, when they battled Spotify. As Spotify stood with Joe Rogan, that musclehead podcaster. I have no respect for podcasters. I really don't. They don't do live and interactive radio. As far as I'm concerned, it's edited. I put it in the can and leave it there. Especially a guy like Joe Rogan, musclehead, right? Ah, get out of here. So this is a group that I grew up with, and I know a lot of you grew up with. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And uh, when you think of it, Stephen Stills came out of Dallas. Graham Nash came out of England. Neil Young and Joni Mitchell came out of uh, Ontario in Canada. Dave Crosby, though, was the bad boy out of Los Angeles. And in fact, the irony is, David Crosby founded two classic rock bands. Two classic. I mean, first it was the Birds, and then Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Sometimes Crosby, Stills, Nash, when Neil Young could not join them from across the border in Canada. But... When I came on board after losing the election uh, to Eric Adams, five days after I lost the election, uh, I was back broadcasting here at WABC. And as you know, uh, Broadway Bill Lee, when I sent out that SOS to you at WCBS-FM, where you've been an iconic figure for 40 years, and then all of a sudden we had uh, Avery jump on board. He was the new Jack uh, put together this team, the three of us. In fact, we've even functioned with two We've shown you, just like we did last uh, Sunday morning, when Avery was away at the urging of management and ownership on Operation Hush, Hush, Mush, Mush. He has not been uh, given license to tell us where he was. We just have to assume it was in the best interests of WABC and our uh, dysfunctional family here and our many listeners out there. But... We don't ask questions. We just went ahead and we did a six-hour extravaganza. Just Broadway, Bill Lee, and me. All these other shows, oh, my God, if they had, they don't have four, five, six people, they don't know what to do. But we know how to do it. Collectively, uh, Broadway, Bill Lee, 40 years, yours truly, 35 years, 75 years in doing radio. Avery, uh, he will prove his worth in uh, just a few hours, in about 24 hours, when he dissects and bisects uh, what Frank Morano has said in this past week, which uh, is the funniest hour in all of radio. And Frank Morano doesn't even realize it. He said, did I say that? Yeah, you said that. Listen to it. Uh, Avery, there he is. He's just able to cut it out. Cut it, cut it. See, see. And the reason that that song was created by David Crosby for me is because Frank Morano, he had that, what, that garage band out there in Staten Island making his songs are like the worst. I say, oh, no, we're top shelf five star. This is not JV. This is not Ted Mack in the original Amateur Hour. Not David Crosby, the bad boy. Nobody liked David Crosby. Everybody hated David Crosby. But what a rogue he was. You know, we heard the uh, caller in the first hour from the Bronx said, a rogue. Man, this guy was a rogue. I mean, look, he came out of the 60s, right? He said he started doing drugs, marijuana, and psychedelics, and he said it was fun. And then all of a sudden, the 60s bleed into the 80s and 90s, and he started using it to blur the pain 
And he said, you don't realize you're getting as strung out as you're getting. And then all of a sudden, you got money to keep feeding the beast. Then you feed it more and more and more. And you talk about a survivor. This David Crosby, a long battle with hepatitis C, which necessitated a liver transplant in 1994. I don't know who got who's first, Mickey Mantle or David Crosby. He also suffered from type 2 diabetes and in 2014 had to cancel a tour to endure uh, an angiogram. I mean, this guy had everything going wrong with him physically, and he could never get along with any of his bandmates. They all ended up hating him. They wanted nothing to do with him. And then probably what he will become most famous for is when he decided to make a donation into the Petri dish. The two children of the singer Melissa Etheridge and her partner at the time, Julie Seifer, came from David Crosby's donation of sperm in the Petri dish. And Crosby had first become a father in 62 with his uh, girlfriend at the time, but they put their son up for adoption. And ironically, in 97, Crosby reunited with that adopted son, James Raymond, who had grown up to become an accomplished pianist, and they went out on tour. They went out on tour. And his son was the only one who got along with him. It's incredible. He had three other kids by his former girlfriend and then another uh, child with his uh, wife of 35 years. His brother killed himself in the late 90s. His survivors include his wife and four children. This is just an incredible story of resilience, resurgence. He had a number of albums that he did towards the end of his career when everybody said, hey, man, hang it up. The guy had done some prison time in 1982 on drug and weapons charges. In 85, he was arrested on charges of drunken driving, hit and run, possession of a concealed pistol, in prison for a year in Texas, no joke. By his account, he quit hard drugs in 86, but in March of 2004, he was charged with criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree, as well as illegal possession of a hunting knife, ammunition, and marijuana. He pleaded guilty and got off with a fine. And this guy was hated by all of his band partners in the birds. In the, in the, uh, in Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, including Graham Nash, who was considered his closest friend. He even, even gave up on him. But now, listen to this classic song. Listen to this classic song. It's getting kind of long. Almost cut his hair. I could have said it was in my way But I didn't And I wonder why I feel like letting my freak flag fly Yes, I guy could harmonize with anybody. I mean, he would have made a great doo-wop singer, would have made a good a cappella singer. He, he, his specialty was harmonizing. He could harmonize with his band members. And he had that certain look 
remember he had that uh, walrus mustache, that long hair. He would always be squinting. But he was hated by everybody. Everybody in the music business hated this guy. But they wanted him because he could harmonize. Imagine, he founded two classic rock bands, each of which said, you founded us, but get the hell out of here. We can't deal with you. You're impossible to deal with. But I can never forget him because he created that song. Can I hear that song again, please, uh, Broadway? Bill Lee, in the midst of the battle that I had his back, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, when they took on Spotify, the multi-billion dollar corporation that had the back of Joe Rogan, and I stayed loyal to Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and to Joni Mitchell. David Crosby delivered this to me. You remember that, right, Broadway Billy? First time we played this was our audience went gaga goo goo, right? Oh, God. David Crosby did that for you, right? Uh, what did Frank Morano have? This guy, uh, what is that, Garage Band there in the North Shore, Staten Island? Oh, my God. He still plays that stuff. See, he said, oh, this song is so good, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that's uh, that's our theme song, Broadway Billy. That's our theme song, done specifically in support of the support that I gave them in their battle against Spotify, and they won. They won. Uh, Joe Rogan doubled the amount of money he made. But still, on the principle, I had the back of Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Graham Nash, Stephen Stills, and David Crosby, the bad boy of, of music. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to John, who's calling from Freehold, New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Johnny. Um, so I just wanted to enlighten, enlighten you about uh, red herring. There's no fish. There's no actual fish called a red herring, but it, what it is is uh, you could also call it kippered herring. You take. Um, I used to do this with my dad all the time. We used to smoke a lot of meat and fish in the backyard, and... Um, you take a lot of brine and uh, you put it on uh, herring and you smoke it and you like over smoke it, it'll turn red and it gets that reddish color and it'll start to stink like fish, like it's really like pungent. And that's what's called red herring. Now, let me ask you a question. You uh, made references to smoking the herring. herring, uh, Now, you didn't roll it up in in rolling paper, did you? No, no, no. Not that kind of smoking. Oh, 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 you mean like smoked fish. I get it. So you would smoke it, what, on uh, burners? No, we actually, um, we built like a, a little wooden uh, box with a little uh, brick oven underneath in the so, backyard. So it would, it would turn red from the smoke? From the smoke and from the brine. Depends uh, depending on what kind of brine you use. 
And then what now, would we, what what would your dad and you do with the herring after that? Oh, we'd eat it. And was it was it delicious? I mean, was it worth it? It, it was, but the the thing is, it's kind of like a it's an old family recipe because back from what my dad told me and what his grandfather told him back in the day, you know, there were no refrigerators or anything. So the more the more brine. And the longer you smoked something, the longer it would stay. Like you cure the fish, and it would stay fresh longer. Now, did you ever have uh, lutefisk and fisker balls? No, I've never tried that. Were your uh, were your grandparents uh, from the Scandinavian countries? No, we're uh, Russian. Ah, oh, Russian. Okay, close enough. Close enough. But a lot of the Scandinavian countries they love smoking the fish. You know, lutefisk, fisker balls, the Norwegians, the squareheads, the Swedes with their Swedish toast and that, the Finns, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, oh, they all love. They can't get enough of that. Yeah, we smoke. Uh, I, I'm, you know, us Russians, we like more uh, mackerel, sturgeon. Um, my dad actually tried to. Uh, have you ever heard of pampana? No, no. What is that? It's a really like ugly looking fish, but. Um, it's one of the most delicious fish I've ever had smoked. Now, are but, you um, sure your grandparents who were from Russia, when they were smoking the herring, which you said turned red by the smoke, that it wasn't uh, symbolic of the big red wave that took over Russia, you know, the the Marxists, you know, the uh, Bolsheviks? <laughs> Just coincidence, I guess. But the whole term of uh, red herring, is uh, what they used to do that um, when they used to make this the the red herring itself, or it's called like I said, kippered herring. Oh. They would um, train the hunting dogs with it. Oh, the kippered herring, yes. They would take a they would take a puppy, and uh, they'd use the the stink from the fish to let the puppy follow the trail. And as the dog got older, they would use that same scent to distract the dog from finding whatever it is it was hunting. So that's where red herring came from. It's like a, a distraction or like something that stinks really bad. That is an incredible answer. You gave us a very extensive historical answer. It's usage. Is, so stay on the line there, John. As you know, we have been limited by the uh, supply problem. Uh, that I am only uh, able to give out one Curtis Lieber booby prize. Don't ask, don't tell. I throw nickels around like manhole covers. Luckily, our owners and operators don't. Uh, so you'll get a, a beautiful uh, WABC hat, John, in which you can style and profile there in Freehold. By the way, Freehold, right? Uh, that's where the boss, uh, Springsteen, was birthed on the other side of the tracks when he claimed he was, you know, from the working class. Yeah, whatever happened to that, right? He's a rumson one percenter now. But you caused me to digress. What a great dissertation about the history and the explanation of what a red herring is. So, uh, Avery, please make sure you hook John up from Freehold, New Jersey. And make sure he gets that Curtis Lee booby prize. Wow, that was, hey, that was one of the best ever. You know, we throw it out there. We So do we put our hooks out there. A lot of times we don't have it baited with herring. And, man, we pulled in a big one there. He gave us more than we asked for in terms 
of the explanation. That, was, that was, You see, that's what I'm looking for. That's, a, that's what defines this show as being so different. You think a guest could have answered that? No, the guest would have given you yes, uh, uh, By the way, I got this book. I love it when I listen to this station and all the people do is promote their books. Like, who the hell has time to listen to podcasts, read books? I don't have time to read a matchbook, a comic book. I'm going to read a full book. Oh, you know, you got to read my book. No, no, I don't. Oh, no, you really do. You really got to get my book. You got to read my... No, no, I don't have to get your book. In fact, I don't want your book. I re- I, I don't like listening to you as a guest. Why the hell would I get your book? And notice, on television, whenever they do interviews, they have like 10 copies of their book in the back, you know, when they zoom, do the Zoom interview. Like, you know, they all act like they're learned men and women. They, they're all sitting in front of a library of books. I'd like to see the title of the other books there. No, no, they, they got to show you only the book that they wrote, you know, like you're going to be, oh, I, oh, I, I can't wait. I got to I got to get on Amazon. I got to get that book. Ooh, 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 ooh. I got to go to Barnes and Noble. That never happens. And then the interviewer on TV, they're giving you the title of the person and they say, and yes, the book, and it, the book is like multisyllabic. It takes you five minutes to give the title and the subtitle of the book and who publishes it. And, and then they show the book and it's like the interview is over. I don't do that. I have been, I, I refuse to. I'm not going to be giving you the Wikipedia version of a guest, which is like half the interview. Oh, they did this, and they did this, and they got a book, and a this. And a... Boring. And the same thing all the time. It's like, you already know the person, right? No, they got to tell you their whole Wikipedia. We don't do that here. We had that woman, Loretta, in our first hour. What an amazing historical... Picture she created for us about her elopement. Remember? She said she was taking the old ferry between Staten Island and Bay Ridge. She uh, was going to Benson her. She was flirting with the pretzel guy. Said, was it salted or plain? Oh, salted. Meantime, a guy 11 years her senior elopes with her. And there's the little calico kitten looking at her like, well, what about me? Had to take the calico kitten. Well, you're not going to get that from a guest. The guest, oh, Professor uh, Ad Nauseam, you know, just authored this book. Hello, how you doing? How you doing? Oh, how you doing? Oh, how's the wife? Small talk. There's no time for small talk, right? Boring. Anyway, our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go, if we can, to Tom calling from Delaware. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Tommy. Oh, uh, hey, Curtis. I'm glad you got me so quick. Uh, you know more about David Crosby than I've ever heard before, and I thought I knew a lot about him. But uh, you mentioned his harmonies, and he, he had the most wonderful talking voice. Uh, what was that, Tom? He had the most wonderful, haunting voice. Yeah, and I mean, this guy could harmonize. That's a real, um, I would say, gift. It really is a gift, because look how abusive he was to himself, his voice over the years. And yet he could all, he could come out of a jail cell and harmonize, you know, like on the spot. He was my favorite out of that, that whole 
you know, that, you know, the two bands and everything he did. And, uh, I did hear a, a story that's not so favorable about him. Now, hold on. You're, you're coming in, uh, Tom, you're coming in muffled. You got to speak directly into that speaker because you will never harmonize with any of us at this rate. How's it now? Perfect. You're, you're, you're spot on now. He had uh, recorded uh, Deja Vu uh, with a sound engineer named Steve Barncard, who also did uh, American Beauty with the Grateful Dead. They were working on the album uh, at the same time, both bands. And uh, David was so impressed with Barncard, he wanted him to do uh, his album, if you can only remember my name. But Barncard said... Uh, he was such a jerk that he wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, no. Everybody, everybody did not like David Crosby. You he liked said, him, right? You liked him as a – yes, go ahead. He said he, he treated – if you weren't a hot chick or had some sort of celebrity, he treated you like a bug. Like Drek, like Drek on the bottom of your shoe. And Barncard wouldn't do it till, uh uh, David uh, begged him to do it and paid him a bonus above what he was getting from the studio, and he did, and he made probably one of the classic albums that nobody knows about of all time. If you could only remember my name, you know that album? No, not I've heard songs from it, but I, I don't remember the whole album. But boy, you you were into that. By the way, how far uh, do you live from uh, the president where he had his little uh, Corvette uh, stored in the uh, garage? Well, that's in Wilmington, and that's about an hour. But his beach house in Rehoboth, that's about 10 minutes. <laughs> in fact, I was riding my bike one day last year on a bike trail out there, and uh, there's all these guys in, like, uniform going, you can't go any further. Because Joe is here today, and he's at his beach house in Rehoboth. It's, it's very close to where I am. Wow. But, well, uh, you're going to want to be listening because uh, later on, Tom, we're going to be playing the classic song by Prince, Little Red Corvette. <laughs> More news about the hot Corvette of Joe Biden without Jay Leno. That's for sure. Well, let me hear Let me hear this song by Dave Gould. Great song. A lot of these songs were done later on in his life. Got to find wooden ships. Wooden ships because the interesting thing about wooden ships was like an anti-war epic. Uh, I remember it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. No uh, Neil Young. I, I think he, uh, they, they wouldn't permit him to come across from Canada. But Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane contributed. And then the label that owned the rights... The Jefferson Airplane said, no, you can't get credit for this. Can't get credit for this. David Crosby wanted to get his gun and go over and shoot the executive who who were in charge of the label of Jefferson Airplane and Grace Slick and such. He said, you contributed to this. You should get credit for this. He goes, I can't. I can't. The label won't permit me. Boy, back then it was really bad. 
really bad. Let, let me hear this. This is classic. Wooden ships. See, it comes out of one side, and if you notice, it's the old school way. It comes out of the other side. So if you're not listening in Dolby sound, you can actually hear it the way the record was cut. As you go from your right side of hearing to your left side of hearing, which will throw you. Especially if you're stoned and you're high and you've had a few too many to drink. See, like I can hear it out of two different sides of my ear simultaneously. Yeah. So good. Big loss, David Crosby. Oh, yeah. Wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. Easy, you know the way it's supposed to be. Imagine, this is a guy that everybody in the music business hated. They hated this guy, David Crosby. Yet, they would always say, we need somebody to harmonize. Oh, we got to get David Crosby. He's in jail. He's been busted on a DUI charge. Another time a drug charge, another time 44 Magnum, 38 Special. This guy was always strapped. Why? He came out of L.A. Oh, let me hear that. Let me hear that. time favorite groups, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and of course, Joni Mitchell, who wrote the song Woodstock, and she couldn't perform it, she couldn't get up, past a half a million strong who went up the New York State Thruway in the summer, remember, 69, so she told the boys, you do the song, I mean, hey, come on, that was her song, Woodstock, which became the theme of that great documentary. I'll never forget watching it right next to the Gil Hodges Bowling Alley, uh, Marine Park. Then they moved Gil Hodges over there to, uh, I'm, I'm mixing my, uh, mixing my parts up here, right? Anyway, the point is, I remember there was like four people in the theater. It was a great documentary, Woodstock, the opening, half a million strong, sung by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And then you saw a song written by Joni Mitchell. Wow. I'm having flashbacks now. It's anti-war epic. Remember, they used to have demonstrations in Washington, D.C. against the Vietnam War. A million strong would go to D.C. No Internet back then. No flash mobs. No social networking. By word of mouth, by flyers, by pamphlets, people would be hitchhiking. Wow. 
That was organizing at its premium level. And I'm sure some of you went to some of these anti-war demonstrations and you would hear, you would hear in the background, wooden ships. Great song. Captured the era, the essence of all the controversy about the war, the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., RFK. Oh, man. I mean, you can't even compare now to then. As much mishigash as is going on now, nothing comparable to then. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848. Oh, yeah. Play it. Play it. So good. Can't interfere with the music. Sorry, can't cut that off. No, Broadway Billy, that would be sacrilegious. You know, they'll do that. Other shows, you know, oh, talk time is so important. No. How do you compete with this with your talk time, right? Oh, look, look, it's in my right ear. My right One of the rare records to do this, where if you put on the headphones, you hear it out of the right side, and then you hear it out of the left side, and then it harmonizes together simultaneously. And if you have a buzz on at the time, man, you think it's like, this is Nirvana. Nirvana. He left. What a great job of editing. I mean, I mean to have simultaneously hearing out of both sides of your ears. Oh yeah, and then the riff. Wooden ships on the water, very free easy. You know the way it's supposed to be. Silver on the shoreline, let us be talking about. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Our goodbye to David Crosby. But the continuation of one of the greatest groups that had an impact on all of our lives. Crosby, Still Snatch and Young, and let's not forget Joni Mitchell. 1-800-848-9222. All night long, this is another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. This is another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. You heard that from the Bernard McGurk Studios here at WABC, right? I beat the hell out of Chris Libertine. I I don't want to hear any excuses. We have to honor the man every time we broadcast from these studios. 
And let me be the first, and hopefully the others will follow. You know how it is in life. You die, right? Everybody, oh, it's such a horrible loss. They go to the wake, and there's a funeral mass. And then like a month later, it's like, huh? What? Life goes on. No, 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 no. If there's one thing that I will make sure is that we not only preserve the memory of Bernard McGurk in every way possible, but that we try to prevent people from dying the same way he did needlessly because of prostate cancer. Oh, uh, we're working on it. Uh, well, there'll be announcements coming up. Well, no, I'm not dropping the ball on this, I promise you. You know me. I'm not a fair-weather friend. When I commit to something, I go the whole nine yards. It may be Don Quixote-ish, as I started this program talking about, swinging at windmills. But I will find a way, with the help of others, to get it done. We will fulfill our promise to all of you who uh, still mourn the loss of one of the greatest of all time, both as a producer and a talk show host, the combination of the two. Nobody has ever done it better, combining the two, than the great Bernard McGurk. Well, let's go to the phones. Uh, to Jimmy calling from Washington. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Jimmy. Wow. Uh, nice nice to tune in. You know, I, I didn't mean to call this show, but I'm telling you what. How many times does things happen in threes? I mean, Jeff, you know, and Lisa Marie. Oh, my gosh. How, how, how often does that happen? All right, so you mentioned Jeff Beck, the great uh, guitarist, Lisa Marie Presley, who just passed, and obviously yeah. and, now and David Crosby. Crosby. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's just like wrong. Well, but think of it. Think you know of it. What? Think of it. Uh, I had mentioned Jimi Hendrix earlier getting booed off the stage at the uh, at the um, Forest Hills Stadium when he was the opening act for the Monkees, which was the hottest group in America uh, that were were oh. more popular than oh. the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But Jimi Hendrix, Owens. right? Oh my God! Yeah, right, but, you're right. You're right. But remember, Jimi Hendrix died. Jim Morrison died at 27. Janis Joplin died at 27. All within the same period of time. Wow. That that is is that a super three? Oh, whoa! It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, Janis Joplin, yeah, yeah. So, Jim sorry, Morrison, you, and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I mean, you 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 can take that one and and. Use it because I don't need to use it. Super three. Super three. That as opposed to the super eight motel, right? No, no, as opposed to, you know, like everything happens in threes. Right now, which part of Washington are you calling from, Jimmy? I'm in Paulsbo. Hmm. I'm trying to geographically connect myself. What is the closest Uh, big city to you? West of Seattle. Okay. Okay. On, on the other on the other side of the Puget Sound, because we always claim we're better over here than they are over there. Well, I got news for you. Everybody's yeah. moving out from over there. You know, even oh, shit, yeah. even Frazier, uh, Frazier and his brother Niles are moving out of there with their father. But question, you know, have you ever visited the gravesite there of Jimi Hendrix? It's it's one of my first regrets, but it's one I can still fulfill. 
I mean, the other one is is not watching a few bands that. I mean, if you could if you could name a dozen, I could probably tell you half of them are on my list. All right, I'm going to give you another person to visit there in the greater Seattle area, the gravesite of Bruce Lee, right there. Oh yeah, no shit. Damn right, <laughs> Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy has a lisp with the S word. I think he's been, uh, hey, look, it's a little damp out there. Have you ever been in the Puget Sound, right? It, it's damp. You feel it right into the marrow of your bone. Sometimes you never see sunshine in the Puget Sound. It's like always foggy, overcast, a lot of suicides. Hey, remember, who came out of a garage band, grunge rock, put that shotgun to his uh, jaw and blew himself into the hereafter. Now, I don't think it was him. I think it was his wife, Courtney Love. Ah, that's what I think. And where was that? Puget Sound, Seattle. It's depressing out there. I've spent time out there and in Portland. Actually, I like Portland better because you got the tall trees. Oh, tall trees everywhere, you know. And nowadays, not so much. <laughs> but it can be really as beautiful as it is. Seattle, beautiful. Portland, beautiful. Tacoma, beautiful. And then it's like this fog. It's overcast, drizzling. It's like, man, I just feel like I'm slitting my wrists. <laughs> yeah. I kid you not. Although with me of late, it's getting smashed when I'm crossing the street. First by that cab three days before the election that I lost Eric Adams right outside of Radio City Music Hall while the Rockettes were practicing inside. And then just the other day as I was escorting my wife, who was like a Helen Keller of late, she can barely see. As we were going to get the Crosstown bus so we could go to the hospital for eye, ear, nose. I think that's 14th Street. We went to the other one, eye and ear, which is in the Upper East Side. And I got smashed by a person on a electric bike. A woman. I wasn't going to go down, man. That would have been weak. Can you imagine that? A woman smashes into me with a, one of those electric bikes, and you think I'm going to take a dive? Hell no. And the guy looks at me. He's getting off the Crosstown bus, showing you how people on the Upper West Side, how they hate me, loathe me, despise me. Ah, you'll be all right. How many times did you get shot? Yeah, a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy, right? Let's go to Joe's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Joe. Yes, good morning, good evening, and uh, yeah, I'm so happy you didn't get hurt, Curtis, and didn't go to hospital. Uh, I'm calling about uh, a trip I did on a bicycle, of course, uh, one of your favorite topics. I'm uh, a longtime biker from uh, 50 years ago, and uh took a drive on Amtrak out to Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. From there, I took my bicycle out to uh, overnight ride to Kent State. And, uh, of course, you remember 1970. The day was May 4. Mm. We lost uh, four uh, students. I could have been one of them there. I was that age. I'm one year older than you. And uh, I just felt 
a calling. They two years for COVID, they postponed the celebration. Well, celebrate. It was a memorial, yeah. candlelight. Yeah. We walked around the campus. We uh, stood in front of the memorial. In addition to the four slain with that famous picture of the woman standing over the dead body on the sidewalk, it was it was just tragedy uh, in those days. Uh, of course, uh, National Guard uh, had uh, no responsibility. Nobody was charged there. Rubber bullets shoot over their heads. No, they had to aim. And uh, nine others were wounded. So uh, just wanted to bring that attention to the public and uh, thank you for uh, caring so much. Now, Joe, uh, where were you from at that time? Uh, what was the question? From where? Uh, where were you from when you were bicycling over to Kent State? Yep, yeah, came from Cleveland and rode about the, just a 35-mile ride to uh, Kent State. Stayed overnight three days in the in the dorms. I, you know, did a little <laughs> sneak in there and just stayed in, inside one of the dorms. And uh, another guy put me up for a professor put me up overnight. So I had three days at Kent State on that. On that uh, memorial ride, which uh, 52 years ago was, uh, uh, they rang the bell there, of course, and uh, had uh, speakers and uh, movies and uh, and all this and all the uh, fellow who from Bloomfield actually made a uh, movie called uh, "The War at Home." If anybody wants to look that up, "The War at Home," and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, also started a lot of protests, which. Uh, 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 somebody bombed a laboratory, even, and uh, one of the fellows uh, was. Yeah, the university, you're right. University of Wisconsin, Badger, that happened there. Uh, it happened all over the country. There was uh, a lot of protests against the war, but I think Kent State probably stood out in our minds because the students were there and the governor sent in the National Guard, the Ohio National Guard. To put down the demonstrators and then, as you had mentioned, kill the demonstrators uh, needlessly. There was no need for that. What was happening here in New York City, what was happening here, wait a second, there it is. It's Neil Young, Ohio. You remember the words to this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This classic song. And, in fact, I remember there were many people who were humming this to themselves when they were coming out to commemorations uh, for the killings at Kent State. Uh, I think the lead word were tin soldiers and Nixon coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming four dead in Ohio. See how I remember it? I remember it. Your, your, your memory is perfect. Well, not perfect. I will tell you this. Uh, at City Hall at the time, John Lindsay was the mayor. He wanted to be president. He decided to uh, seize upon this issue, and what he did was he lowered uh, the flag at City Hall. Wow. There was a city councilman then at the time who later on turned out to be a crook, bilking widows after he became the crooked Queens County Democratic Chairman, Matty Troy. He goes to the roof. He raises the flag back up. The construction workers who had been working on buildings in Wall Street started beating up the yippies there. They were led by Abney Hoffman and Jerry Rubin with their two-by-fours, and they marched to City Hall. That's when Matty Troy rehoisted the American flag. And on one side, you had the hippies and the yipsters. And on the other side, you had the construction workers. You know, love it or leave it was their slogan about America at that point. Yep. Yep. But, But it was all over Kent State. I mean, Kent State was a... 
lightning rod for really both sides uh, in a war. It, you know, I'm looking at now. I'm saying, what the what the hell were we doing there? What the hell were we doing there? Yep, the reason. The look reason at him, there. Look at him now, Joe. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's it repeats itself. The, I just saw a show on TV, of course, of 1917 to 21, and uh, Woodrow Wilson. They had the riots, and people were shot, and things of that nature too. And uh, we're not learning. It's like uh, the Fifth Dimension song. When, where is the Age of Aquarius? Yeah. Know? When will it come? God bless you. Thank you very much for taking my call, Curtis. You are you are one of the best. Thank you. I have a quick cat question. Sure. You, do you want to go with that? Yes, of course, of course. Uh, cat, uh, <laughs> at one time we had three, two are gone, and one is left. The one uh, we have left is uh, not eating for two weeks. All it does is look at a uh, food, takes one lick, and walks away. You can't, she doesn't eat, and she's just meowing all day. I think uh, we took her to the doctor. We got a couple the medicines it's not doing anything uh, maybe nancy i'll call sure. how, how old how old is your cat uh, oh it's at least 10 11 maybe 12 okay that area. Yeah. it's not it's not that old that it can't be a problem that can be rectified i tell you what you do joe uh, Avery, if you can write down Joe's information so that I can give it to Nancy when I see her in the morning. Okay. And if you would be kind enough, Joe, also in case my memory uh, becomes a little Joe Biden-ish, right. if you can call up the Animal Welfare Hour, which is 11 or 12 Sunday night, that's when I finish my Quinella stint uh, <laughs> of always broadcasting Curtis on the weekends. But that's the most popular, most called into, the most requested of the many hours that I do from 11 to 12, but either way, we'll get you information because that seems like that's a solvable problem. I appreciate it. Curtis, God bless you, and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you again. Thank you, thank you. Let me hear a little Neil Young there, four dead in Ohio, Kent State. See, even when Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, even when they went separately and they did their own songs, fabulous. David Crosby, who nobody liked but recognized, was a great talent. Graham Nash from England did his own songs. Uh, remember, he uh, he did the song about going to Chicago. Stephen Stills, Love the One You're With. And then, of course, here. Oh, this is great. say to myself, looking back, why? Why? So many thousands slaughtered. For what? Look at Vietnam now. It's part communist, right? And it's part capitalist. And they're an ally of ours against the Red Chinese. Figure that one out. It's gone full cycle. Full cycle. You're going to learn a lot if you listen to Curtis. New York's talk station with the king of New York. Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. The loss of uh, David Crosby, bad boy of rock and folk. Started two great classic rock groups, 
the birds. They wanted nothing to do with them. And eventually Crosby, Nils, Stills, Nash, and Young, they wanted nothing to do with them. He just, he's the bad boy. And, I mean, he survived many, many times when he should have been dead and buried in others. He actually outlived them. Hepatitis C, was a dope fiend, a junkie, was getting busted with 44 Magnums, 38 Specials. God. Oh, let me hear this. Yeah. These are great songs. Go to Ron in Michigan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Ron. Good morning, Curtis. Curtis, in 1968, I was in Chicago fighting with the cops and the National Guard with my high school buddies. And I had friends who were in the National Guard, and I had relatives in the Chicago cops. And a year later, I was in Vietnam protesting the war in Vietnam, organizing uh, here. Uh, when I After about two, three two, three months, no, no, about a month into Vietnam, I was in the rear with the gear. I was in, the, I was not in combat. Let's get that straight first. Mm. But I organized, you, you remember that we had sit-ins, we had love-ins, we had teach-ins. I organized teach-ins, okay? And what that was, first it started out with one or two guys at night. You know, we, we sit around, smoke, you know, in the back, smoking some reefer, talking about the war, talking about home. And then it got to, after a couple of weeks, over 100 guys sitting around, or you know, talking, rapping. It's passing a J, okay? And, he, and, of course, the sergeants, the officers didn't like that, okay, because uh, we were protesting the war, okay? We were t- what they did, they called in a helicopter. They sprayed us point blank with Agent Orange, okay? My feet are orange right now, okay, because of Agent Orange, and I, I got other problems, all right? But I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm alive, okay? Yep. I didn't get hooked on heroin. I didn't get hooked on CIA heroin that I saw being spread on our base. By Vietnamese soldiers in uniform, okay? But at that point, they had taken our rifles away from us because they didn't trust us. Because you talk about bombings, okay, in the United States. What stopped the war in Vietnam besides the Vietnamese people kicking our ass was soldiers fragging their own officers and sergeants. That was You don't hear about that that much, okay? But I'll tell you, there was a fragging incident when I was in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, it happened around the time of... Uh, Kent State, okay, and the sergeant who, who was targeted, he didn't get killed, but they set a claymore mine over his hooch, and he, he was taken away that, that morning at dawn in a raving mad in a straitjacket, okay, but after, and I wrote letters, okay, when I was in Vietnam to anti-war papers, newspapers, all over the world, okay, and those, those letters went to GIs in Korea, Ger- Germany, all over, the, <clears throat> a year later, just in the Americal division alone, that was my division, it, it, went, it went from like one or two fraggings a month to like over 20, over 20 30, 40, 50 fraggings, and that was one division, okay? We, we, our soldiers protested the war 
by not by not fighting number one and is wrong is all wrong killing your own officers and sergeants but it's an american tradition all right i can remember reading they went back to the when we invaded mexico lieutenant bragg had a, a cannonball rolled into his tent and he it was blown away but he survived okay that was the first first fragging that but i that i but there was fraggings during the civil war okay you know it's not right but it, when it comes to stopping something, it, you've, you've got to take the bull by the well, horns. Well, Ron, you're, you're exactly correct. There was a time in Vietnam where there were so many fragging incidents because the men who were on the ground would suddenly get a fresh-faced, uh, brand-new graduate of West Point or another military institution who would be telling them, well, we got to do this in the, in the Mekong jungle. we got to do this. we got to do this. And the men had had it. And they would actually turn their guns on their own officers, their own command. And that's when you knew that this war was not for long. So uh, we appreciate Ron sharing those memories. Obviously, not everybody had those memories, but it's important. Did that go on the record? Again, I say to myself, when you look at how the history of Vietnam unfolded, why, why, oh, why? And look at Vietnam now. Part capitalists, part communists. We consider them our allies against the red Chinese. Think of that, ladies and gentlemen. People's mayor. Curtis Lewa is the politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep, and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Oh, yeah. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. You heard that intro, the Bernard McGurk Studios, and I beat the hell out of Chris Libertini to make sure it's on every show that I ever do to pay the respect that this man deserves. Oh, that's Prince. Fortunately died of fentanyl overdose. Gee, like Tom Petty. Tom Petty also Fentanyl overdose, and I know I was on fentanyl. It's a great painkiller, but boy, you could easily abuse it, and both did. Both were great performers. But let me hear this song. Hold on. The Red Corvette song. Now, I keep hearing about the Corvette of uh, President Joe Biden in the garage. And then, obviously, the papers he had stored there, important papers, top secret papers, confidential information papers. You know, I'm not going to go that route. You know, you all, you can talk with every other talk show host and hostess here. You know, it's so easy to do. Uh, Joe Biden sucks. Hunter Biden sucks. They do. Uh, but, hey, Donald Trump is no winner either. So my attitude is out with the old, in with the new. But I want to talk about Corvettes. 
Right, because now that that's in the news again because of Joe Biden and his Corvette. And wherever Joe Biden is with a Corvette, you know Jay Leno is soon to follow. But I'm saying to myself, hmm, a year before I was birthed into this world, 1953, Corvette was unveiled by GM. The prototype, the Chevy Corvette that I know many of you probably were dreaming about when you were younger, whether to own one or ride in one or be seen in one. It made its debut at General Motors Motorama Auto Show at the Waldorf Historia Hotel in New York City. 1953, the Corvette, named for a fast type of naval warship, would eventually become, eventually, because it wasn't then, the iconic American muscle car and remains in production today. Following the debut of the Corvette prototype at the Motorama Show in January of 53, the first production Corvette was completed in Flint, Michigan. For those of you, uh, I've been to Flint and Saginaw. Oh, man. Oh, man. They're like uh, mini Detroits. But anyway, I digress. In addition to the Corvette coming off of the assembly line in Flint, Michigan on June 30th in 1953, the first what was Flint, Michigan, best known for producing on assembly lines? I remember there sitting in that assembly hall of the United Auto Workers Union, and they were uh, like in the throes of the last year of producing what was an iconic vehicle that we would see all throughout the streets of New York that you almost never see any longer. Well. Do I give him a booby price for that? I got to, man. That is a classic. I, we got we to gotta open up the uh, pipeline. I know the supply line is, like, limited. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. But that first Corvette that came off the assembly line in Flint in 53 featured an all-fiberglass body, a white exterior and red interior unremarkable 150 horsepower engine that's it 150 horsepower engine and a starting price tag of three thousand five hundred dollars not including taxes or an optional am radio and heater gotta get that am radio right in an effort to give the corvette an air of exclusivity gm initially marketed the car to invitation only vip customers but this plan met with less than desirable results. Only as a portion of the 300 Corvettes built that first year was sold. Imagine that. They didn't sell like hotcakes. GM dropped the VIP policy the following year. However, Corvette sales continued to disappoint. In 1954, the year of my birth, GM built about 3,600 of the 10,000 Corvettes it had planned with almost a third of those cars remaining unsold by the start of 55. Hey, yeah, 53, 54, 55, this was not a popular car. Corvettes, right? It was talk within GM of discontinuing the Corvette. However, GM rival Ford launched the sporty two-seated Thunderbird convertible in 55, and the car quickly became a hit. GM didn't want to discontinue the Corvette, and looked like a failure next to its big three competitor. So the car remained in production and performance enhancements were made. 
That same year, a Belgian-born Russian-raised designer named Zora Arkus Duntov became head engineer for Corvette and put the car on a course that would transform it into the legend that it still remains to this day. The car also got a publicity boost when it was featured on the TV show Route 66, which I remember watching as a kid, which launched in 1960 and followed the story of two young men driving around America in a Corvette looking for adventure and fun. In 1977, the 500,000th Corvette was built. In 1992, the 1,000,000th Corvette came off the assembly line in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Now, you notice in all the discussions about Joe Biden's Corvette, did you ever get that kind of a summation? Of course not, because, oh, Joe Biden, the Corvette, oh, the papers, the top secret papers, the confidential papers, the papers, the tissue paper, Scott tissue paper, 500 tissue papers long. Enough of it. Enough of it. The papers are of no consequence, whether it's the ones that Joe Biden had or the ones that former President Donald Trump had. It's a wash. It's a wash. I don't care. I know for the, those of you, you're beating yourself up. Oh, my God. It's, oh, there's more and more questions surrounding discoveries of classified Biden docs. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out on the uh, Trump uh, confidential papers that were found in Mar-a-Lago. I don't care. To me, it's of no consequence. There are serious issues we have to deal with in this country, and it's not the fact that both these guys had confidential top-secret papers. I anticipate that they all would. Except for who? Jimmy Carter. No, no, I, I need that song there because I can't imagine Jimmy Carter driving around in a Corvette in Plains, Georgia. But Jimmy Carter, although he was like the weakest president, although Joe Biden is really giving him competition for that title, Jimmy Carter, I truly believe, did not take with him confidential or top secret papers to his uh, home in Plains, Jordan, uh, Plains, Georgia. I really don't think he did. And it's interesting, boy, you can imagine the trove of papers he could have taken with him to Plains, Jordan, uh, Georgia, after he left just four years. Remember, he was beaten by Reagan because of the involvement of the, what, 444 days? Remember the hostages from Iran? That was 1981, the Iranian hostage crisis you imagine all the top secret confidential papers he could have taken to Plains, Georgia, either to uh, refresh in his memory when he was writing his memoirs or whatever? This is nonsense. Stop this already. Oh, it's a great song here, right? The Red Corvette. I mean, let's face it, the ultimate muscle car. I remember the first time I had a fill-up high test in a Corvette. It came up a yellow Corvette at the Shell station that I was pumping gas in. I was a night manager for Rocky Station right there on uh, Rockaway Parkway, Seaview Avenue, and it came in. And I opened up the back, and you saw the whole tank inside, the gas percolating high test. I said, man. 
And what did it get? Like a uh, mile and a half on a gallon? And actually, that was a chick magnet car. Only two seats. Right? So it was you. And you would cruise around. And there were always girls who would want to ride in a Corvette, even if you were the dullard, if you were like um, uh, a hayseed. They would just want to get in the car to be uh, to say that they had experienced a ride in a Corvette. And after going around a few blocks, you know, after they were seen by their friends and their girlfriends and other guys in the Corvette, say, no, no, I'm not kissing you. I'm getting out of here. I had my my thrill in a Corvette. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let's go to Danny in Virginia. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Danny. Curtis, I heard that guy all oh, guy called in about the cat that wouldn't eat. Sometimes a cat and a dog won't eat. I got a tooth problem. But the uh, reason I was calling about the Crosby Stills and Nash music. Now, Danny, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. Which part of Virginia are you calling from? No, Roanoke is. Say that again. I didn't quite hear you, Danny. Roanoke. Oh, Roanoke, Virginia. Okay. Yeah, uh, the thing was, I was main reason I was calling you is I remember all that music. I'm sixty four years old, and I come, I kind of come in on the tail end of that stuff. And when back years ago, I was in a motorcycle club. And, we did a lot of LSD, acid, and marijuana. And I don't know, I find it kind of funny today that uh, marijuana's legal. Willie Nelson's got a farm, and what's her name, Suzanne? Uh, she's got a farm. Now, let me ask you a question, Danny. Uh, what bike club were you with at the time? I really can't say. Were you ever on psychedelics when you were on your your bike? Yeah, probably at a time or so. I don't know. I used to ride a triumph. <clears throat> now, how difficult was that? Well, I well, <clears throat> until you get coming, start coming down off the stuff, you really can't ride. <clears throat> now, what I wanted to say was. I feel like I'm in a twilight zone because now they're legalizing marijuana. And years ago, you know, you had to hide everything from the law, and the laws will come after you. And now I mean, they're legalizing it. I mean, think of it, Danny, in Virginia, that part of Virginia. Remember, the cash crop used to be tobacco. You go into North Carolina and tobacco. Now the cash crop is marijuana. Well, uh, oh, yeah, I was going to mention that about the Corvette. I had some of those come out with a uh, six-cylinder engine with a 235 motor. See, when you uh, were a biker and you're doing reefer and acid and God only knows what else, this is what happened. Maybe this should be uh, like a uh, public service announcement for drug-free America. This is you at the age of 64 after doing acid and riding a Harley. Now, he didn't he didn't suggest that when he was tripping, he was on that Harley. Uh, you notice that Broadway Bill Lee. But 
You're saying when you were coming down. How did he know when he was coming down? Those trips could last for a while. You know, tab of acid wasn't a guarantee like it's, you know, six hours time release. Okay, your trip is over in six hours. Nope, didn't work that way. Imagine this guy. And the other bikers, same way. They'd be dropping acid, and then they get on their Harleys or their Triumphs, and they'd be, like, tearing up the road. Danny, 64, hey, he made it. And now look at him. He's there in Roanoke, Virginia, wondering, damn, we used to have to hide this stash. We get arrested for it. And now they're pulling out blunts and smoking it in the air like they just don't care. Man, it's a shock for a lot of people, not just for Danny in Roanoke, Virginia. Anyway, let's go, if we can, to uh, Jack, who's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Jack. Hey, what's happening, Curtis? How you been, buddy? Not good. Uh, you know, I just got smashed by a bicycle the other day while escorting my wife, who's like Helen Keller, because she can't see across the street, so we could catch the Crosstown bus to go to the hospital for an appointment. And, man, I got, like, smashed! Bang! Does that tell you how I'm feeling right now? Well, I got hit by one back in 1986 when I was working for the New York City Buildings Department. Wow! And I was I was coming coming back over offices for us in the in municipal building, and uh, the guy, I was coming walking towards it. The guy was coming straight at me with the bike, and I was trying to go where to go left to right, and he's doing the same thing. And finally, we collided, and I I went to I went to hit him with my my briefcase that I carried with me. <laughs> Wow, what happened? Did you suffer? Did you did you suffer any injuries? No, he, he partially knocked me down, but I was cursed. You know, you know, you have the right of way. The pedestrian has the right of way. So, thing is that uh, he put his bike in front of me and my my briefcase. Wow. It's a four-sided hard hard briefcase to carry. Building inspectors carry around. But I thought maybe I thought maybe you were uh, calibrated. You had a hard head, and that's how you survived that. <laughs> I got a hard Irish <laughs> Uh Now, uh, you got to lower your radio, Jack. We're getting a lot of reverb, man. It's bouncing all over our studio here at WABC. Hold on. I just want to I want to give you my guess with Cardi stop making. Yes. A Chevy Bel Air? A Chevy Bel Air. No. Not a Chevy Bel Air. Again... The first Corvette came off the assembly line, 1953. It was not a top seller. Most of the Corvettes did not sell. First one off the assembly line was in Flint, Michigan. Last one, the millionth Corvette, was Bowling Green, Kentucky. But there was another particular car that was made that was a tradition in New York City that was made in Flint, Michigan. I was there at the UAW uh, meeting that they had. They were going to uh, terminate uh, the construction of this car that was so synonymous with the streets of New York City for many years. And let me tell you, if you're ever in Flint or Saginaw, mm, man. Next stop, Florida. Next stop, North Carolina, South Carolina. You want to get the hell out of there. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Pete calling from the Bronx. 
Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Pete. Oh, the checkered cab. You know, I drove. I... What happened? Let's hear Pete. Let's hear Pete. I think this is Steve from Manhattan, but we'll give uh, Steve an opportunity. Uh, Steve, you don't have to be Pete. from Manhattan, the legendary caller. I know. You see, I got you. I got you. you win the booby prize. You're right. It's the check of cab. Well, Curtis, you got to remember, too, um, people don't realize you, you, you're a big, strong dude. You could take a shot from a cab and a, and a linebacker from the NFL. But the thing is, um, you know, it, 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 you if you realize when you take off your, your beret, you look like a 1970s cab driver. <laughs> <laughs> and so does Eddie Vetta. Now, Eddie Vetta actually turned into a 70s cab driver if you see him. And all the women in the... Oh, Eddie Vetta. <laughs> and the vet, the vet is also, people don't realize, it's a Chevy. It's, it's Chevrolet. And it didn't use the, uh, you know, the old uh, Red Cross emblem that people find disgusting on the Chevy cars. It's the first one, not the half one. But people try, try to conceal that. And that car, they had the 53. Now, maybe some of these girls are with us. They had the 53 Corvette girls. There were a certain amount of girls that were picked. You know, they were you know, they were good-looking girls, and they were used to promote the car. And they might be in this audience, definitely be in this audience, because a lot of them came from the Northeast. But I know a lot of people escaped down to Florida recently. But, Curtis, um, the guys were big deals. They would roll their father's car out and put it in neutral. They'd roll it out in the driveway. Not the not the Corvettes, the 57 Chevys, the Bel Airs and everything. And those kids were basically terrified. They, their mothers, because the teenagers in the 50s were flying down the block in 2,000 pounds of steel that they never saw cars before. You know, if, if there were guys, and now they're not around with us, the only guy in the block who owned a car, the guy would pull into the street, he'd park anywhere because he was the only guy in the on the block that had a car. And then when the 50s came around, a lot of moms had a lot of sleepless nights because of seeing their kids flying around in there. And then the 60s, that's the muscle cars came around. But they never considered the vet to be a muscle car, believe it or not, even though we all loved it. But then again, you're a pretty big guy. You're comfortable sitting in there. I mean, that was like the mini Cooper of the uh, 60s. Everybody was used to such bigger cars, and they started cutting them down in the 60s, and then they started in the 70s, even though the people were demanding better gas mileage after the uh, gas crisis of the 70s, and they were still making big jumbo cars. I mean, my grandfather sent his Buick LeSabre to Japan. They sent back 300 uh, Toyota Corollas with all that metal. Hear that? See, classic uh, stay on the line, Steve from Manhattan. See, he doesn't have to be somebody else. I got him, right? By the way, Billy, but I knew he was subdued. But he has a wealth of information when he wants to share it instead of trying to pretend to be somebody else. He gets through on other shows. There's no doubt about it. They have no idea, but I've been listening to Steve. It's like 35 years. This goes back to Bob Grant, the king of talk radio. <laughs> go Buchanan, go Buchanan, go Buchanan. That's what he always is, a uh, hashtag, right? But he didn't need to do Boy, what a wealth of information he gave us there, right? We learned a lot. That's why I prefer callers to guests. We could have a guest on talking about Corvettes, and he's probably selling Corvettes on the side. So, you know, he's like a used car salesperson. Well, we don't want to hear from a guest. But your personal experiences out there, like Steve, 
He took us through a panoply from the 50s to the 60s. Also, he pointed out that being in that Corvette, you were like trapped. Didn't have a lot of space. He was absolutely right. You get into that GTO, that muscle car, right? Or remember, beep, 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 the Roadrunner, the Plymouth Roadrunner, that my cousin Lenny Beans Bianchino would be sitting on the second floor of the house we were living in at 89th and J. He had it parked in the street, and he'd sleep with a sawed-off shotgun in the chair, and they stole it from him three times right out in the street. You know who stole it from him? The very movie that our own Sid Rosenberg will be appearing in coming up. And it ain't the Bamboo Lounge. Oh, no, Troy Avenue. The Tester Brothers, Patty, Joey, and the Gemini Twins, Joey Tester and Anthony Centaur. These are the guys I taught stickball to, and they, they ended up becoming psychotic killers. You would have thought I should have been giving uh, advice, right, on the on the on the movie set. I knew these guys. These Gavones, muscle cars, yeah. Oh, man. Steve, that was maybe Steve's best performance ever. Make sure Avery that Steve gets his Curtis Lieber Booby Prize. We'll make an exception for all those years that he's been calling since the days of the King of Talk Radio, Bob Grant. Brian Whitman, oh, man, what a talent. What a talent. We're going to do a full hour on Brian Whitman. I'm already beginning to collect all the great programs he did and the voices. Michael Jackson, Al Gore, fantastic. Jay Diamond, great voices. He did Mario Facha Bruta Como. He did Ronald Reagan. He did Al Slim Shady Sharpton. Lynn Samuels, favorite of uh, Broadway, Bill Lee here, right? Greatest female talk show hostess of all time. And, of course, uh, that Looney Kazuni from Parts Unknown, Art Bell. We're going to do an hour on each of them. I promise all of you that. That's great talk radio. Pave the way for all of us. Let's go to Roger in Massachusetts. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Roger. Yeah, thanks. Uh <clears throat> Three little things, three little facts about the Corvette. I think it was 55 when Chevy developed its first V8, well, or put it in production, rather. Uh, I think they dropped one in the in the 55 Corvette. I believe that was the first year you could get a V8 in it. So that, that helped uh, their image. <clears throat> uh, number two is that did you know which year, the, which production year there was no Corvette? Do you happen to know that? No. Which Which year? Uh, 83. What was the reason? Um, well, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe the retooling, retooling because they completely redesigned it for 84. Um, 83 was the last year for the uh, shark-shaped. Now, uh, I now, mean, 80, 82, 82 was the last year for the sharp, shark-shaped one, and then they came out with a wedge-shaped Corvette in 84. So in 83, the model year, they didn't have one. Now, you uh, appear to be uh, quite an aficionado about Corvettes. Uh, the Corvette yeah. that we see in the uh, the pictures now that we see uh, first Joe Biden with, with Jay Leno, and then now his son, we see some pictures today that came out. Hunter Biden was driving that car also uh, with some hot uh, to trot. I don't know if she was a hooker or a girlfriend or whatever. What what make and model, well, we know the, the make was the Corvette, but what year was that Corvette? I have no, I have not not seen any pictures of Joe Biden's Corvette. 
Wow, um, you like Rachi? You like the only one? Maybe so. But by the way, the one millionth Corvette—they had it in the museum. They have a museum in Bowling Green, and uh, um, about ten plus years ago, the, uh, there was a large sinkhole developed under under that museum. And the floor dropped out, and, they, and a, a lot of cars dumped into that hole. And the one millionth Corvette was uh, one of them. And they actually managed to sort of get the car re. They they put a, they managed to get the car rebuilt, and they had to contact some of the production line workers, as many as they could, that worked on the production line uh, thirty years prior, to get them to come up and re-sign their names because as that one millionth Corvette came over the production line, some of the workers signed their names uh, underneath, you know, inside some of the panels, inside the fender, under the hood, under the dash. And here, and so they ha- uh, they managed to contact some of the production line workers so they could re-sign their names under the replacement parts to get to have that car rebuilt. Well, no, that's, uh, that's definitely classic here. And let me tell you, that based on uh, what you've just described in uh, Bowling Green, I'm going to throw a little trivia question out there. Back when the uh, Knicks were with Baseman Bertha, it's before they had uh, Willis Reed in the paint, uh, they had a, a guard, outside guard, who if uh, he could have played with a three-point uh, shot, would have been an all-star, but there was no three-point shot back then. What was his name? And he was a graduate of Bowling Green University, right? Played guard for the Knicks at that time. And see, a little trivia, a little sport. A little, we had a lot of sports today uh, in, in the morning with uh, Sid and friends, you know, because the Giants and the uh, Eagles. Uh, I'll be talking about that later on because uh, even though I'm a Giant fan, uh, I don't hold out much much hope for the Giants against the Eagles and what is that, Link Stadium there, Psycho Stadium in Philadelphia where they're all psycho fans. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. When we come back, I want to hear more of the T-Bird song by the Beach Boys because remember, according to uh, the history, if Ford hadn't come out with the T-Bird, which then forced GM to focus on Corvette production, Corvette would have been bagged and tagged by 5657. Our number is 1 800 848 9222. This is another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Real fine, my 409. Can you imagine doing a song about an electric car? Hey. <laughs> we 
we got Prince doing Red Corvette. We got Beach Boys doing Fall Night. <laughs> I can't imagine somebody doing a song about a Tesla electric car or any of the big three now manufacturing electric cars or Hyundai in Korea or Toyota hi, 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 in Japan or any of the uh, European makes or models. It just, I don't know. It was... When I take it to the back, she really shines. Giddy up, giddy up, four She always turns in the fastest time. Giddy up, giddy up, four My four-speed dual quad positive traction, four oh nine. Ah, classic. By the way, uh, they had an AM radio, right? You see what Tesla is doing, taking all the AM radios out, Elon Musk. Followed by all the competitors making electric cars, trying to get rid of this thing of ours that is so intimate, so personal to so many AM radio, active-minded. This will be the fifth time in my lifetime they said that AM was dead on arrival. Not, and especially here at the number one news talk station in the nation. We're now heard in 38 states, parts of Canada, a sliver of Europe, right on down to Davy Jones's locker between the Bahamas, a... Uh, which has been a sanctuary for the FTX Bitcoin bandits and Bermuda, which was where Cousin Brucey got his first radio gig. No, not in the United States. Nobody would hire him. They hired him in Bermuda. The greatest DJ of all time had to begin his career in Bermuda. He sent out all of his resumes, you know, with everything he had done at NYU at that time. Uh, where he was uh, with the radio station there. Nobody would hire him except in Bermuda. And in just a few hours, you'll be listening to uh, Cousin Brucey from 6 to 10. And before that, his protege, Vinny Madugno, and then Tony Orlando without dawn from 10 to 12. And then I'm back to do it all over again. But in the interim, I'm back 3 to 4. I'll be at the Lunar Festival Parade in Flushing, the annual Lunar New Year Festival Parade. Uh, the Guardian Angels uh, are really, really embraced by the uh, Asian and the Chinese community because of all the folks we've come to the rescue of who continue to be uh, attacked indiscriminately. But from 3 to 4, you know I'm going to be sitting here with uh, Avery, our telephone uh, uh, phone screener and our nighttime producer. I'm going to be with left versus right Anthony Weiner. And the reason I mention that is I'm going to bring this to his attention. The Concord, remember that was like the muscle plane, the Concord. The last Concord took its uh, commercial flight in 2003. You know who was responsible for discontinuing the Concord flights? Anthony Weiner. When he was the uh, city councilman, then the the uh, congressperson representing that area. But I remember it was what, 76. And the Concord took off from London's Heathrow Airport an Orly Airport outside of Paris. The first Concords with commercial passengers simultaneously took to flight. The London flight was headed to Bahrain in the Persian Gulf and the Paris flight to Rio de Janeiro via Senegal in West Africa. I've actually been there. Dhaka in Senegal, oh, man. You better know French because if you don't know their tribal language, you're going to be stuck. And they don't tolerate they don't tolerate any nonsense from their teenage uh, young men there. Uh, you got the elders who walk around with a rattan, and if they see the teenagers acting up, whack, whack. 
At their cruising speeds, the Concords flew well over the sound barrier at 1,350 miles an hour, cutting air travel time by more than half. The flights were the culmination of a 12-year effort that pitted English and French engineers against their counterparts in the USSR. In 62, Britain and France signed a treaty to develop the world's first supersonic passenger airline. In 69, the Concorde began its test flights. On June 3rd, in front of 200,000 spectators, the Concorde flew a flawless demonstration. The Concorde was not a great commercial success, however, and people complained bitterly about the noise pollution caused by its sonic booms and loud engines all around JFK, uh, the old Idlewild Airport. That's when uh, Anthony Weiner stuck his two cents in and lobbied against the flights. Most airlines declined to purchase the aircraft, and just 16 Concords were built for British Airways and Air France. On July 25, 2000, an Air France Concorde crashed 60 seconds after taking off from Paris en route to New York. All 109 people aboard and four on the ground were killed. The accident was caused by a burst tire that ruptured a fuel tank, creating a fire that led to engine failure. The fatal accident, the first in Concorde's history, signaled the decline of the aircraft. And on October 24, 2003, the Concorde took its last regular commercial flight because of Anthony Weiner. Roger, Roger. By the way, I should tell you how I snuck onto a Concorde flight. Oh, I got to tell you. So at the at that time, I'm doing mornings with Ron Kuby, whose mommy is a commie here at WABC. I was not going to let Kuby do the morning program by himself. He would have destroyed the program by chasing away all the advertisers. No ticky, no washing, no talking. So I was stuck in London. I had just graduated a new graduating group there in the uh, north end of London. And I made it out to Heathrow by the uh, the tube. You know, they have a subway that goes right out to Heathrow Airport. You know, most countries in their major urban areas have a subway that takes you out to their airport. Not in New York City. Oh, no. We have clearance, Clarence. You have to uh, go out to Jamaica Station in order to catch the plane to the train, the monorail to JFK. How ridiculous. They're still talking about building a link to LaGuardia from Willits Point, Shea Stadium on the 7 line. Yet you go to Chicago, CTA, right out to O'Hare Airport, right out to Midway Airport, which is Air LaGuardia. And you say, how could that not be? Cleveland. I have two guardian angels going to Cleveland this weekend. Unfortunately, the chapter leader's uh, extended family got a gruesome murder. Five people murdered in a house. Two of them junior guardian angels. Horrific. The uncle who had gotten out of prison, they allowed to come into the home. He was a Goldberg. He was a deadbeat. He goes downstairs. He opens up the refrigerator. He says, what, no milk again? So his father says, why don't you go out and get a job? This way you can buy milk. The son goes upstairs, gets a forty-four Magnum, and starts shooting everybody in the house. God, horror. Two of them junior guardian angels in Cleveland, West Cleveland. Uh, we'll be there to show our respect for the group there. But it's a, they, this kind of violence can reach out to anybody's family at any time, any place. 
especially with those screwballs out there who have all the furniture upstairs and rearranged it in the wrong room, over a container of milk. A container of milk. Imagine the father and mother let the son come home after doing time in prison for attempted murder, which was a mistake. But in letting him come home, then he's a gold brick, a deadbeat. Gets into an argument with the father, who's paying all the bills with the mother, and then takes the gun that he had hidden away under the mattress and blows away everybody in the house. Horrible. Horrible. And this is the kind of systemic violence that uh, families have to deal with all across America nowadays, all across America. But uh, I digress momentarily. I have to let you know that because that's a major story that's uh, taking place in the heartland of America. But I snuck onto a Concorde flight because I had missed the normal British Airlines flight. And uh, I gave him my credit card. They took the credit card and they swiped it. I get to the other side. The end of the month, I get the bill. It's like $10 trillion. <laughs> I can't afford that. So they tell me I had to go to the old Boulevard building across from LaGuardia, right next to McClancy High School on the BQE. You see it. Some of you are driving past right now. And the vice president in charge of British Airlines in America lucky for me, was a former nun. So I go there and I, I say, uh, nun, well, I forget what her name was, sister, not Carmen C. It'll come to me. Anyway, I said, please, I, I don't have this money. You know, they're going to fold the credit card, but I don't have this money to pay. I had to get back. I had to teach, oh, I listened, yeah, to, to make sure that Ron wasn't by himself. Yeah, I'm going to write it off for you. You're right. You wouldn't have had a program to come back to. The, the sister knew it. He would always badmouth our advertisers. And if I was away, if the cat's away, the mice would play. Boy, was I lucky that his sister was the vice president of British Airways America right there at the Boulevard Building next to McClancy High School across from LaGuardia along the BQE. Whew. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up to uh, Anthony Weiner in just a few hours, three to four, left versus right, and say, you know, you're the one, you're responsible for the destruction of the Concords. By the way, the flight went straight up, shaking like a leaf. You thought that the plane was gonna break in two, and as soon as it reached its apex, it would go straight down. And then land at JFK, and the sonic boom would be let off. Roger, Roger. Horrible flight. Although, man, it cut the time in like a third. By the time you got on, you didn't even have a chance to read a magazine. You already landed. It's great. We got to have supersonic flight. We got to have supersonic flight. Anyway, let's go to Colleen, who's calling from Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Colleen. Good morning. I was almost going to hang up. I'm getting a little tired here. <laughs> uh, you had asked a question uh, the last segment about Joe's car, Joe's Corvette. Yes. His Corvette's a 67 uh, uh, C2, okay? That's the style. Now, uh, how did you uh, become familiar with Corvettes? Did you have one or you were riding around in one? 
No, a little of everything. I do have one myself. I'm a 65. Wow. They're awesome cars, let me tell you. A lot of fun. Now, now, uh, he, how old were you when you first had your first Corvette? Well, we got the car in 1978. Okay. Some fellow uh, up the street was squashing it while this house was being built in. His wife won a new living room set. Now, do me a favor, Colleen, because we're hearing the reverb, the reverb of the radio that you have on is bouncing. Oh, you know what? I had, I had you on speaker. Oh, no, no, that's Sorry. fine. That's fine. So is that no, better? Yeah, a thousand times better. thousand times. Uh, I took the speaker off. Good, good. Uh, the fellow up the street was uh, washing the car when this house was being built, and his wife won a new living room set. So we got the car for $4,200. 4278 Forty-two hundred dollars in what year? Nineteen seventy-eight. Wow! So I held on to it. My husband was a Vietnam veteran, hundred first airborne. He was over here in the Northport VA, losing body parts. No pun intended. And uh, he almost sold it um, before before he got ill, because his his friend wanted another one. They were in partners with the car, and his friend got a a, a sixty-nine, a tri power. So I'm a I'm a Corvette. I love Corvettes. Now, now, Colleen, uh, mm-hmm. do you remember how many miles a gallon you get? Because I remember when I was filling them up, and this was in uh, 72, the summer of 72, you'd be lucky if you get a mile and a half on a gallon. Well, you have to run, you know, the the high, the very high test uh, gasoline to really make them run well, you know. So you you have to, you know, it's not, believe it or not, I think it's, it's not even a big uh gas tank on that thing but you don't drive it every day you just drive it once in a while now do you find uh, that your attraction to the corvette made the guy in the corvette look that much better no i take my corvette out now and the guys like the car and the girls like my pomeranians (laughs) (laughs) and everybody and every time i take it out someone wants to buy it. it it was laid up for 13 years because my husband was ill and he was in the VA for seven and a half years, literally, before, you know, having strokes. We were talking about all kinds of health issues before. And, uh, you know, health issues between uh, hepatitis, he had strokes, arterial disease. He also from Agent Orange, related, but he didn't take good care of himself either. Mm-hmm. He was 101st Airborne Vietnam. Is he with and, us any longer? No, no, mm-hmm. he's gone now. Wow. So so uh, the Corvette wasn't used for 13 years, and it had a lot, needed a lot of work done to it. So a good friend, you know, came over and said, you know, I can do this and that. And, you know, we worked together on it. And my son is an auto mechanic, and he helped do a lot of the work as well. So we had to redo everything. So uh, it's, it's, there are a lot of upkeep. They really are. What color? So what color is your Corvette? It's, it, and that's another thing I was going to say. Joe has a convertible. I have a coupe, the hardtop. Oh. Now, you also mentioned, like, the designs before. The, between 63 and 67, Joe's got the last year. 63 had the split window, which was a floor. All right, now they're worth a lot of money because they are, you know, very rare. But uh, they, they didn't make a whole bunch of the 63s. So it was only five years, I think, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, five years that they made the C2 style. The, the C1 was more more boxy looking, you know the the early the early version. Ah, you are like you are a Corvette aficionado. So when you're out there driving around with your little doggies, your fluffy little yarn ball dogs, 
<laughs> How much are people offering you for that car, just basically in conversation? Uh, well, you know what? If it was perfect, perfect, that you know, when you look, there's some beauties out there. I do car shows, too. Like, I work car shows as well. And you should see some of these cars. Mine, I would sometimes I don't even bring my car because it doesn't have everything done to it that I'd like. You know, you could go crazy with this stuff. Unfortunately, I, because my husband was ill, I I couldn't work on it. I, well, not I wasn't physically. I pay people to work on it, but 13 years. You know, I, I say he was in my garage rotting, which they don't do, but. But I would walk past it and say, one day I'm going to get it back on the road, which we did. Wow. Well, let me tell you something, Colleen. You better not go to sleep till the break of dawn. You know, it's Broadway Bill Lee. She hinted that she almost went to sleep. There's nothing more insulting to a talk show host or hostess than to say you're almost going, going, gone asleep. Well, let me hear a little bit of that Prince Red Corvette. This is dedicated to Colleen. It's like a symbol of the United States in many ways. Strength of the car, the horses underneath the hood, just the sleek look. It really is. Although some would say the T-Bird, right? Or, of course, the Italian stallions out there. Hey, my rock Camaro, you know. I got the uh, I got the uh, Italian horn there, you know, with the, <laughs> with the crown. Oh, my God. The I-Rock Camaro, right? You tell an uh, Italian stallion that, oh, yeah, man, I'll take my Camaro, my I-Rock Camaro anytime. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. He knows New York. He is New York. Cred that the others don't have. Curtis Lewa. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Sammy Hagar went on with Van Halen. Wasn't as good. Nah, wasn't as good. But this song, classic, and it's the embodiment of what we've been talking about all this hour. Anyway, from uh, Corvettes and T-Birds, 
Let's go to uh, Josh calling from Connecticut. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Josh. Hey, Curtis. Hey, sorry you got hit by that uh, crazy bike. I'm in New York a lot myself from Connecticut. Um, and I've had some close ones <laughs> with those bikes. They're, they're flying. I mean, flying. But, uh, you know, I, I own the Corvette. I, I, that's not the reason why I called, but I just wanted to mention um, – so in uh, 2004, I bought a, a 2006. So I, you know, I do, I do a lot of driving on the transportation industry, and so around that time, around 2003, you know, I was headed up towards Boston, and I saw this black tinted windows Corvette, and it was the Stingray, no doubt, and it had the chrome rims, and I was like, I'm gonna own one of those one day, hmm. and it wasn't far to it that I did. So I had the C6, white titanium seats, black with chrome rims, and it was the bomb. I only had it for two years, but, oh, man, what an eye catcher. But the only drawback is when you're sitting in the cockpit, you're looking over the, you know, with the, with the Stingray in that era from 2005 to about 2009 because they changed the body style a little bit. You had to look over. That was the hardest part. That, you know, yeah, I look over the hood, and that was the hardest part for me because I owned a bunch of, you know, little, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, stylish little uh, sports cars, rally cars, and I, and it drives like a truck. Like, I had a six-speed. I made sure it was, you know, it took me a while. I wrangled with a guy in uh, Heart, Heartland of America out in Iowa. I flew out there all in one day. I drove all the way back with it. Hit, hit some snow, too. That was scary. Hmm. Uh, but they have run flats. You know, that year had run flats and I had a target top. So the target top is like an open, like it's glass on top. And you just, it, it has like a compartment in the back. There's no room in that car for anything, really. Just the trunk had like a little, or the, the hood. You open the hood and you could put a carry-on luggage. But I loved it. I, it was great. It was so fast. I had a friend. He had an Escalade. He goes, let me see. And, oh, and the other thing is, an old guy on it. He was a collector. And uh, he got rid of it pristine. This car was pristine. I got such a great deal. And because uh, his wife, she was tired of hearing the rumble from it. But he put what's called a Billy Bolt exhaust in it. And it was like a gentleman rumble, this Billy Bolt. And uh, everybody loved the car. You know, I was like, <laughs> on cloud nine, people were coming around. I was like a celebrity in that thing. And uh, I was around, I guess I was about uh, about 42 years old, 43 years old. I'm 57 now. I'm 10 years younger than you, but what an experience. No, I can't, um, I can't imagine. You know, people, if you really want to connect them with an era, you connect them with a car that they uh, had a passion for, went out of their way to get, uh, baby it up, uh, ride it around. And again, it's like symptomatic of being an American. I, you see that with people with electric cars. I mean, I don't know. I, it's an electric car. It's like, oh, okay, it's functional. Just telling they, they, I, I don't believe anybody has that same kind of feeling towards their electric cars as they have, as you had, uh, you just experienced in this past hour with the Corvettes that we were talking about, the T-Birds, and the other muscle cars. Anyway, uh, up next, oh, Fleetwood Mac, don't stop, remember?
synonymous with Bill Clinton. Oh, yeah, we got to go down memory lane. The blue dress, Paula Jones, the whole nine yards. Because we conflate music with subject matter better than anybody else in talk radio. On the weekend, take a journey with the people's mayor. Curtis Lewa is a politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep, and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Oh, yeah. Now, to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC, here's Curtis Lewa. Reminds me, uh, 1992, and then that rogue Bill Clinton, governor of uh, Arkansas from Little Rock. He had ants in his pants, and he needed a dance. Hot pants, one. Hot pants, two. But I remember there, uh, Madison Square Garden, I had been uh, shot five times with hollow point bullets on June 19th in 1992 and was in recovery. When they were having the uh, Democratic National Convention in Madison Square Garden, they nominated Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, with his wife Hillary. And I was able to go down and watch the proceedings. And as he was greeted by Democrats who were looking forward to having this moderate Democrat lead their effort in a presidential race in which the Looney Kazuni from Parts Unknown, Texarkana, Accommodation of Arkansas and Texas, Ross Perot was ahead in the polls, independent. And with him, it was all about the analytics and the budget and things we're talking about now, debt ceiling and deficit. He was the wonk, and then it was Bush 41 who had been so ahead. He had a 78% acceptability rate right after the uh, Persian Gulf campaign against Saddam Hussein. And the haunted uh, Red Guard in the sands of Kuwait. And then all of a sudden he crashed and burned in the general election. And against all odds, it was Governor Bill Clinton who superseded uh, the implosion of Ross Perot. Not just once, but twice. Slick Willie. That's right, Slick Willie. And he was on that stage, and I remember looking up. I could barely move around. And boy, he was uh, he was absorbing the love from the crowd. But they had in the background Fleetwood Mac, which was playing this theme song of his all during the campaign, Don't Stop. But then in 1993, Fleetwood Mac reunited. 
to play Don't Stop at Bill Clinton's first inaugural ball. Trust me, I was not invited to that. Fleetwood Mac performed for President Bill Clinton and Hillary at that first inaugural gala. And, uh, I mean, they hadn't been together, I think, in five years. Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, Christine McVie, Stevie Nicks. They got back together in order to sing this song and other songs in honor of Team Clinton. And apparently Bill was so convincing, he had gotten the entire Rumors era lineup of Fleetwood Mac to reunite for this live performance of Don't Stop on this very day in 1993. Convincing he was. But we can't forget, remember Bill Clinton who had his pickup truck and remember the AstroTurf he put in the back, uh, Broadway Bill Lee? Man, what was that AstroTurf for? Mmm. Man, that guy was a, was a rogue from Hope, Arkansas. Hope! You know, we talk about storytellers now. George Santos will be talking about uh, Lady... Uh, Lady Santos later on in the show. A <laughs> drag queen. <laughs> and Uncle Joe Biden telling a story a week, manufacturing it. But I'll never forget Bill Clinton telling that story about how he grew up in Hope, Arkansas. And he remember hearing the screams from nearby black Baptist churches as they were being burned to the ground by the Klan. And it turned out that historically there was never any black churches in Hope, Arkansas that had been burnt to the ground. I don't know. Maybe it's in the atmosphere. You know, you get Trump telling his whoppers. You get uh, Clinton who told his whoppers. And then you had... a lot of hot sauce. What was that? What the hell was that? And then, of course, Joe Biden tells the biggest whoppers of all, except... They've now been superseded by Madame Jos Santos, the uh, drag queen. Maybe you want George Santos to come over to a library near you in your neighborhood and do a drag queen reading hour for your children or grandchildren. Oh, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. But the reason I'm also playing this uh, historical piece by Fleetwood Mac... That was 93. The Clintons could do no wrong. They were on top of the world. By 94, things began to come crashing down. And who led that effort? As Hillary called her trailer trash, Paula Jones. She accused Bill Clinton of sexual harassment. Paula Jones is the former state Arkansas clerk filed suit against President Bill Clinton in the federal court in Little Rock, Arkansas, asking for 700000 in damages. Paula Jones claimed that Clinton, while governor of Arkansas, sexually harassed her and then defamed her after she went public with her accusations. Actually, it was Hillary who defamed her by calling her trailer trash every chance she got. The following August, Clinton's lawyer filed a motion to dismiss Jones' suit citing presidential immunity. The federal district judge ruled that Clinton could not stand trial until leaving office, but that the investigation into Jones' allegations could proceed. Jones appealed and in 1996 won the right 
to proceed to trial in the Supreme Court. Clinton then filed a request to delay the trial until he left office. The timing of the decision, which coincided with the November 1996 presidential election, bought Clinton a reprieve. While working on the Paula Jones investigation, independent prosecutor Kenneth Starr uncovered Clinton's affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. When questioned about the Lewinsky affair, the president was decidedly less than forthcoming, leading to charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. Though Democratic leaders preferred to censure the president, Congress began the impeachment process against Clinton in 1998. A divided House of Rep impeached him on December 19th. The issue then passed to the Senate, where after a five-week trial, he was acquitted. I remember talking about this in the mornings when I was doing mornings at WABC at the time with Ron Kuby, whose mommy was a coming. I remember saying that Bill Clinton should have settled this case with Paula Jones. The reason he did not settle the case with Paula Jones was because of Hillary. Hillary said, you're not going to give that bitch a nickel, dime, or penny of our money, that trailer trash. And naturally, Bill did not want to stand up to Hillary because, let's face it, she stood by her man. If not for that Super Bowl appearance during the halftime, I'm standing by my man. That would have been it for the gigolo Bill Clinton. You remember that. But he could have settled with Paula Jones. He chose not to because Hillary was saying not a nickel, dime, or penny to that trailer trash. Had he settled with Paula Jones, the whole story about Monica Lewinsky, the blue dress with the stain, might never have emerged. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, might never have emerged. Particularly back then. Remember, that was just when the Drudge Report was coming out. Wasn't really a lot of online activity like there is now. You know, you you sneeze and it's like on 42 different... uh, uh, 42 different media uh, outreaches in terms of social networking. But you may have remembered there was a particular character in New York City who wrote a check to settle the case on behalf of Bill Clinton with Paula Jones. This is afterwards. And he brought the check out and he blew it up and he put it on stage and he had Paula Jones there and I think her husband. And it was for a lot of money. Ladies and gentlemen, how much money was that check for that settled the case with Paula Jones? Turned out the check bounced. But the person who issued the check was an infamous person who at one time owned the Pennsylvania Hotel, that dive, that rat-infested tourist trap. It was right across from the old WABC at 32nd and 7th. Who am I talking about? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Irv, who's calling from Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Irv. Hey, good morning, um, Curtis. Uh, I'm uh, an old neighbor of yours from the uh, 70s in Canarsie, and all this talk about uh, cars uh, leads me to remember what one of the most popular um, activities was and the reason a lot of guys guys mostly 
had these muscle cars, and that was to cruise the avenue, meaning Avenue L. I'm wondering if you remember that and if you did that. Well, I had uh, Rocket Olds 88, which was a muscle car. You get like a mile and a half on a gallon. Boy, you t- you touch that gas pedal and you flew. It's not like you always almost thought you were going to take off. Yeah, but I didn't. Hey, really, I, got, I, I didn't I, really cruise Avenue L. I went racing on Fountain Avenue uh, towards Fountain. towards the dump in East New York. Yeah, no traffic there. I remember. I remember. Hey, uh, you asked the question about the uh, Knicks guard that preceded uh, the Willis Reed era. Was it Howard Comives? That is correct, Howie Comives, who uh, basically at times would take a two-handed set shot from out where now you could score three points. They didn't have three points back then. But this guy would shoot from the outside. The only other guy who would bomb from the outside at that time, he was with Cincinnati, was uh, Adrian Smith, who had come from Kentucky, who was uh, Oscar Robinson's partner in the back uh, uh, in the backcourt for the Cincinnati team. Yeah, yeah, those uh, those were nostalgic days. Anyway, it popped into my head. Uh, so anyway, now you uh, you used to cruise uh, Avenue L. Yeah, but I had the opposite of a Corvette. My first car was a 1969 Volkswagen Beetle with the engine in the back. Uh, if you remember those efficient cars. Now, cruising with a. Volkswagen Beetle, what were you at? You were a hippie guy, right? Yeah, yeah. It was my first car, the, the only one I could afford at the time. No, I know, but, uh, you know, it could be 40 degrees below zero. Before there was global warming climate change, it would be 40 degrees below zero, and you could start that Beetle up like nobody else could start their cars up. It started in the cold, but it didn't start in the rain. Because it had those vents in the back hood, and the engine got wet, and the carburetor uh, uh, got wet, and uh, that's when you couldn't start it. Now, but you, mm-hmm. as you cruised Avenue L, what did the Gabons, the Supreme Cuisines, and the muscle cars have to say when they saw the hippie scum driving along with them in that Volkswagen Beetle, as they re- would refer to you as? They... Uh, they chased me off the L, and I had to go down the uh, street. I usually turned at East 93rd Street around the corner from the Canarsie Theater. Wow. So nobody tried to run you off the road. Well, they tried, and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to be uh, a victim of that. So uh, I got off real quick. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. In fact. I had uh, my first uh, van was uh, air-cooled, very similar to the Volkswagen, but didn't have the pedigree of the Volkswagen van. I had the the van uh, that Ralph Nader had written against in his book against General Motors. He said that if you drive this car, this air-cooled van or car, uh, the uh, not the Corvair. It right? was the Corvair, Corvair right. I think. Yeah, that uh, a strong gust of wind would blow you over, and it was a dangerous car. And he was absolutely right. But again, like the VW Bug, you could be forty degrees below zero, boom, and that baby would turn over. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe Howard Comives, uh, who got paid about uh, 
$5,000 a year in salary. Uh, <laughs> drove one of those. You're right. Well, thank you for those memories, Irv. All right. Do I get a cap? For, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, well, we're, we're opening up this. Uh, Avery, I know they've given us a limitation here, but Irv, it's Canarsie. we got to do this. Uh, you know, you have to. I'll explain to uh, John and Marco Katsimatidis, I'm sure, for old time's sake. And the fact that Irv survived on Avenue L with all the Supreme Cousines in a Volkswagen Beetle, which was considered the hippie vehicle at that time. And these Italian Supreme Cousines would scream out of their GTOs, Hey, you hippie scum, get off the road. Let you go to Canada. <laughs> oh, man. And the car defined everything. The car defined. So you see, I went from the Corvair van, which was considered a death trap by Ralph Nader. He wrote a book about Corvairs. To the Rocket Olds 88. And by the way, I didn't have a license. All I had was a learner's permit. I took the driving test four times and failed. I could not parallel park. And the uh, driving instructor wanted a bribe, wanted me to leave some dead presidents, you know, right on the seat. And I refused to do that. I had long hair at the time. I looked like a hippie scum myself. And so the guy, not the same guy, but every time I took the test, I didn't pass. And I'd be driving with a uh, with a learner's permit, which you were only supposed to do during the day if you had a licensed driver next to you. And I never did. And you weren't supposed to drive at night, which I always did. Oh, man. A few close calls. And then I take it down to Fountain Avenue in Pennsylvania Avenue, excuse me, not Pennsylvania Avenue, Fountain Avenue off of Linden Boulevard, right on down to the dump where everybody would drag race. Uh, I never won because those guys, man, they got they had those cars all hopped up, turbocharged, they had everything. I mean, God only knows they weren't using gasoline. I forget what the hell they were turbocharging their engines with. And my cousin was, oh, yeah, you got to come down with your Rocket 88. Lenny Beans, Bianchino, he had the beep, beep. Maybe the Plymouth uh, Firebird. No, not the Firebird. The uh, it'll come to me. Beep 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 The Plymouth. You know, it was all hopped up. Our number is one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Let's go to Neil, who's calling from Hillside, New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here on W A B C. Neil. What happened? And uh, I bought that in 71. I sold it uh, uh, three years ago. But uh, those cars are like women, you know, uh, beautiful woman. Nice to look at, but a real bitch. I mean, there are so many things about that car that were annoying. Uh, if it rained and just your breath alone would fog up the, the windshield, you uh, roll down the window a little bit and you'd get splashed in the face with, uh, with the rain. You open up the vent window uh, for uh, ventilation, and it would drip on your knee. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is that because of the fact that the firewall is fiberglass, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, contain the heat in the engine compartment. And people will say, Glenn, uh, do, you have, deal, do you have the, uh, uh, the heat on? And uh, I tell them, no, that's, uh, that's from the engine. And yours was a 66 Corvette? 
Yeah, and uh, Biden has a 67, but his is the uh, same uh, 327. He doesn't have a big block. He's got a small block in that car. The big blocks bring the big money. Right, but uh, you had yours for how many years? From 71 to uh, 2019. Wow, and you kept it in the garage. Did did you ride it a lot or keep it in the garage? No, no, it was in the garage, and and I had an accident with it, and I put a uh, replacement uh, nose on it aftermarket, and that reduced the value of it. And would have caught, and I I changed the paint color, but who knew back then? You know, uh, you do those kinds of things, uh, and who knew that that was going to devaluate the uh, uh, the car? Well, it's like uh, it was like uh, the uh, with my uh, old uh, tops uh, baseball cards when I would write on the uh, card when they were traded to a different team. I completely devalued the card. <laughs> <laughs> So in its essence, you devalued the Corvette car with the changes that you made uh, to it that were not the specs of the original, right? Right. And it is in the windshield. When I had to get it replaced, um, they put in um, a not what it came with was uh, uh, was LOF, and they put in a PPG. Now, if you were a real, you know, uh, Corvette enthusiast, you'd say, wait a minute. That doesn't match the side windows, which are made by LOS, and this is PPG. There were so many little things like that that uh, 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 took the price. When I sold it, took the price down. Now, so uh, I want to tell you one thing, though. Yes. I, I, I'm saying Neil, okay, because it's really like Nielsen. I, I, I carry the uh, the meter, um, and when, uh, when I hang up and I go to bed, I'll hang that up, and uh, it'll tell me how many points I had today. And, uh, you know, listening to your show, it'll register that uh, as a as a listener. Good. I've been doing this now for about over over a year. Good. No, I appreciate it. Hey, look, uh, you know, there are very few of those that are out there circulated around, so it all helps. And uh, obviously, as you can see, this form of the other side of uh, overnight uh, is uh, different than Frank Morano's uh, side of the other side of overnight because it's all theater of the mind. How they selected me, uh, I have no idea. Uh, just that I had gotten uh, something in the mail. I responded, and uh, they came out, um, gave me all the equipment, and uh, that's that's been it. Well, thank you. Thank so, you. And listen often uh, and, uh, you know, Make good use of that because that is the uh, lifeline of uh, radio. He's talking about how they develop ratings, which is key. There's also a stream, which can determine if people are listening on their apps, which is the modern way of doing things from your smartphone or your iPhone, uh, where you can hear it from anywhere in the world, except I believe you can in Antarctica, although we gotta we got to test we got to have somebody test that out, maybe a penguin in Antarctica or a walrus. And then, of course, the stream on your laptop computer or on your work computer, that you can hear crystal clear. Because we have resurrected ourselves to once again be the number one news talk station in the nation. Now the toughest job is not becoming number one, as I tell all my colleagues, having done this for 35 years. It's staying number one. And if we're a dollar short or a day late or we let up 
on always being uh, cutting edge or we just keep repeating the same old, same old, we won't be number one any longer. That's what I hope to do with this program is to go where most people never go with their programs. Again, we don't have guests. We have you, the listeners, because I believe you are far more interesting than any guests we could have on the air. There are plenty of other shows that have guests. Let them knock themselves out with the guests. I would much prefer to turn over, turn open the phone lines to all of you to be able to hear your personal experiences, your circumstances, and the way you tell the narrative of the point you're trying to make. So much more interesting to me. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Mike, who's calling from College Point. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Mike. Hi, Curtis. Your old friend, Mike. Uh, it's the uh, Paula Jones check was written by uh, developer Abe Hirschfeld. That's correct. Abe Hirschfeld. I think it was, what, a million dollars? Yeah, some, some outrageous amount, but... Abe made a fortune with those open air garages. I mean, he owned a lot of he owned the real estate where those garages were in Manhattan. So in the '60s and '70s, people needed to park their cars coming in Manhattan, and he just got the uh, warehouse or buildings and then converted them to open air garages. And the, the what was more valuable was the air rights above the garage, the potential for development and stuff. And his garages were all around Manhattan, five boroughs, and. Uh, I mean, that check shouldn't have bounced. No, but, the yeah. first one did. Then I think they had to put it uh, They had to put it in escrow. Yes. I think yes, it was yes, a, mil- yes. a million bucks. It was embarrassing because he was on a stage. The whole world was right. watching. They had the check blown up, and then the Paula Jones and her husband go to, to deposit the check, and it bounced. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. what a character Abe Hirschfeld was. He owned the Pennsylvania Hotel that dived 2,200 rooms. He drove that right into the ground. Then he tried to kill his business partner. He was uh, on charges, and they found him guilty. Tried to have his business partner whacked. He ran for all kinds of political offices because the Democrats loved him because he'd give them tons of money. I think he even ran for lieutenant governor of the state of New York. Yes, yes, he did. He actually was very popular upstate New York. Uh, you know, he ran for for lieutenant governor, senator. So he ran on the Democrat, and he also ran Independence Party. Yeah, and, uh, and again, I, he wasn't afraid to spend money when he ran because no, uh, uh, people loved when he was coming because, hey, Abe, you're running for office. Uh, we're looking for a payday. And he was very generous about that, paid everybody very well. Oh, no, that because he understood uh, the mother's milk of politics is money. Volunteer, he paid for staff. Print media, broadcast media, anything he get his name on, he did, and he wasn't shamed. And I have to say, you know, like you said, it's a mother's milk. And, uh, you know, when they saw that, they saw a definite paycheck. And then I had the opportunity to visit the New York Post when Abe Hirschfeld had saved it from the scrap heap. So Abe Hirschfeld right. buys the New York Post. And uh, I was doing morning radio at that time, uh, I think it was with uh, Lisa Angels in the morning. I'm not quite sure. Uh, But I go there at his invitation. I'm sitting there. He's got a whole newsroom full of people who wanted to hang him. And he goes, Curtis, I want to interview. I want to introduce you to my new managing editor. That's the person who uh, would have the control of what the New York Post would go to print with. 
and he introduces me to Bill Tatum of the Amsterdam News. And I said to him, I said, this is going to start a riot. They're not gonna. They're not gonna react well that you want Bill Tatum to be the managing editor. No, no, I saved the paper. They'll do what I tell them. So then he introduces Bill Tatum to the entire newsroom, and I remember guys like Murray Weiss and others like screaming and yelling, "What? What? Bill Tatum? No way!" And that's when they published against his will, against. Uh, Abe Hirschfeld's will, the front page where they had Alexander Hamilton, remember, with the teardrop yeah, form? Yeah, he was crying. It was the illustration of him crying, right. Yeah, and then they then they forced uh, Abe Hirschfeld to sell out. There was another crook that uh, that uh, Mario Cuomo, Mario Faccia Bruta Cuomo brought in. He was always wearing these press uh, badges, who ended up being a very dear friend of Jeffrey Epstein. So we know what happened. Uh, we, we know what happened there. And then finally... Rupert Murdoch was uh, permitted to come back and buy the paper because at that time, remember, there was a rule. You couldn't have a broadcast station and a newspaper in the same market. So Mario had to allow for that to occur, Mario Cuomo. He was no fan of Murdoch and the Post. And Ted Kennedy had to allow that to happen in Boston where Murdoch had the Fox affiliate and the Boston Herald. And to this day, you say to yourself, what kind of a deal did Murdoch make with both these guys who hated uh, Rupert Murdoch and everything he brought in terms of his local TV stations, the Fox stations, and obviously the two newspapers, the New York Post and the Boston Herald? Mm. I'm to this day wondering what kind of a deal was made. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. It's another side of midnight. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. Ah. Godfather of Soul, Soul Brother Number One, James Brown of the Big One Two Five. And as you know, as we were talking about Bill Clinton, many considered him to be the first black president of the United States. His office is still up on 125th Street. Slick Willie. That's right, Slick Willie. Perfect time, though, to get into a discussion. Three different subjects that are mind-boggling. Let's go to the country of Squareheads, Norway, right? Norway. Uh, Norway is spending over a million dollars to conduct a study. Maybe we'll have to ask you, Avery, uh, our telephone screener and our nighttime producer and also Broadway Bill Lee, since uh, you are the two brothers. 
whether white paint is racist. That's right. The country of Norway is investing a million American dollars at the University of Bergen to explore that question, is white paint racist? Asking how the aesthetic of white paint helped the nation contribute to white supremacy and help make the world whiter. Whiteness is not only a cultural and societal condition tied to skin color, privileges, and systemic exclusion, but materialize everywhere around us. A rundown of the study read, although Norway is not a conventional colonial power, this project will show how the country has played a globally leading role in establishing white as a superior color. Until now, however, this story has been lesser known to scholars and the public. So the overall objective of the Norwegian study is to investigate the cultural and aesthetic preconditions of a complex and unexplored part of Norwegian technology and innovation history that has, as this project claims, made the world wider. Wow. White paint represents white supremacy, according to scholars. And now you know why I call them squareheads. You got to be a squarehead. And then they think that Lee Ferrickson and Eric DeRed discovered the new world, right? <laughs> so if you're going to be painting anything white, if you're going to be painting your house white, whatever you're going to be painting white, this is a signal... You are a white supremacist. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And in addition to this, uh, San Francisco has a committee. The Board of Supervisors is the equivalent of its city council. And the committee has determined that people of African-American origin should be entitled to $5 million in reparations and forgiveness of any debts that they may have incurred. $5 million. But you have to be an African-American. You had to have lived in uh, San Francisco for 13 years. You had to have been born in San Francisco. And you had to be a legitimately an African-American. And I said to myself, whoa, I think I'm the only one who has brought this uh, to anybody's attention. That under those rules and regulations, if it does become the law of the city of San Francisco, and by the way, the people would have to pay the reparations to an individual African-American who either was born in San Francisco, had to have lived 13 full years in San Francisco, uh, are the taxpayers in San Francisco, because nobody else is going to pay it. As you know, Gavin Newsom passed legislation in Sacramento and signed it into law. The California in the future is going to be paying reparations to African-Americans uh, who were born in California or who learned or lived there a certain number of years. But in San Francisco, if you were born there, if you lived in San Francisco at any time of your life for 13 years, you're entitled to $5 million. Now, I know, Broadway, Bill Lee, you're immediately wondering you're going to check your lineage, your your chart. Your DNA chart to see if the Mormons in Salt Lake City can connive it so that it indicates that you were born and raised in San Francisco. Like Bill Russell, right? Like the great Bill Russell, right? 
Well, I think it was Casey Jones or Sam Jones. I don't know. One of those Jonesy boys uh, played at San Francisco State University, believe it or not, with the great Bill Russell when they were NCAA champions. But that's not the athletes I'm talking about. Sitting up in Las Vegas, responsible for slitting the throat of his former wife and her boyfriend is O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson drew, grew up in the Potrero Hill public housing project. There's Potrero Hill and then there's Sunnyvale. I patrolled both with the Guardian Angels there. It overlooks the bay. It's gorgeous. They're low-rise projects. His mother was an accountant in a nearby hospital, and his father was a known chef, but also a drag queen in the, that's right, a drag queen, a known drag queen in the Castro section of San Francisco at night, performing and entertaining. He spent 18 years of his life in San Francisco. He was born there in the projects, went to high school there. Then it went to play for the uh, USC Trojans in Los Angeles. But he can claim, make a claim on $5 million and the forgiveness of uh, any debts he's incurred. And you know the debt that he uh, has incurred to the Brown family and the family of the other murder victim. Uh, he lost the civil trial. So nobody has pointed out that if that were ever to become the law, of the city of San Francisco, reparations to the tune of $5 million per African-American with forgiveness of any debt or loans that you had. All you had to do is be born in San Francisco and prove that you lived at any point for 13 years in San Francisco and you were legitimately an African-American. Madonna my our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Jimmy in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Jimmy. Hey, Curtis. How are you, my friend? Uh, this is Jimmy. I'm just getting ready to walk out the door. Uh, I got the demolition carding business over there on Junior Street. Uh, right next to Palagonia, the Italian bread uh, factory over there. looks like a correctional facility. Yeah, with all the barbed wire. But uh, how right. long? How how long have you been in the demolition business? Well, I'm in the business myself uh, a little over thirty years, thirty two years. Before that, my father had it for probably a little longer than that, thirty five years. So your yard so, there, uh, your yard for the equipment and the trucks is right there on Juniors. Yeah, I'm right there on Junius. Junius, uh, right by New Watts Avenue. Well, now that that's right by, right by the train. The train is like around the corner. Yeah, uh, L train, New Lots. There, there you go. Question. That's, there you go. That, that's a tough area. Have you ever been jammed up there? You know, Curtis. People ask me that question a lot, and uh, I spent just as much time in that neighborhood as a kid uh, because I was my father's shadow. I, I, you know, as a little kid, I, I never left his side, and I was always with him. And, you know, I began to know the people in the neighborhood uh, just as well as the folks in my neighborhood of uh, Midwood. You know, I mean, I went to Madison High School, you know? Sure. And, uh 
you know, it's like uh, when you're there for that long, you become, uh, how could I say? You you become like 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 one of the uh, boys in the hood, so to speak. You know. Yeah, you and, become uh, a, a fabric of the neighborhood. That's right. That's a, a great way of putting it. And uh, would you believe in all the time that I spent in that neighborhood? And uh, I could honestly say that at one time that was the worst part of Brooklyn. At one time. Uh, I never had a problem, never got jammed up, never. Not even once have I ever had a problem in that area. And that's uh, me, my father, my uncles, the guys that worked for us, never. Nobody ever had a problem. That's incredible. Uh, uh, When I took Sid Rosenberg out there, I took him on patrol with the Guardian Angels, Right by Junius and uh, Lor- uh, no Junius Street there, and uh, not far from Sackman and Newport, which used to be the headquarters for Murder yeah, sure. Incorporated. Um, That's right. Midnight Roses, you know, where you could get an egg cream and a salted rod pretzel, and then uh, take yeah. take out a contract to have somebody whacked. I pointed out that lot there across from Palagonia that you can see from the L train to the three train on the walkover. And uh, right. Sid was getting all excited. I said, you know, that's where they deposited the, the bodies for Murder Incorporated. That's when the Jews were the tough guys and the Italians would subcontract the hits to the Jews. That, you know, a lot of people, when you tell them that, they, you know, they find it very hard to believe. But that's the way it was. You know, pick an avenue, pick any avenue, Dumont, Sutter, Belmont, thought that was all Italian and Irish at one time. Yep. You know, that was all, you know, there was no such thing as uh, African-Americans uh, or it just didn't exist at that time. You know, uh, it was all, like I said, white, Italian, Irish, whatever, Jewish, uh, but uh you know, a rough neighborhood. There's always a rough neighborhood, regardless of what kind of people were there. But uh, what I wanted to talk about mainly was the racing down on Fountain Avenue. Uh, you know, when I finally became of age to drive, which was, uh, you know, you're 16, you get your permit, 17, you get your license. But, I, of course, I was driving before that uh you know, uh, you drive without a license. Everybody did, you know. But uh, I'll tell you, those races, then they were deadly because there was no regulations. There was no uh, rules. It was just, uh, you know, one way, one, two lanes. One lane going uh, that way, the other lane going that way. But we turned it into, uh, you know, <clears throat> both lanes going the same way. And one guy in the middle, and he would just jump. And as soon as he jumped, that's when you put the pedal to the metal. And uh, I'll tell you, I pretty, saw a couple of pretty bad ones down there, you know, where people lost their lives, you know, hitting the poles. And, uh, you know, it was, it was dangerous, but fun at the same time. You yeah, know, well, uh, as, as you know, it was out of the way. It was a straight right. shot to the dump. The problem was the uh, asphalt wasn't always paved as well as it should have been. So you could hit a divot or you could hit a pothole or... And you'd be in trouble. 
Yeah, you could end up Man. getting wrapped around a pole, and that's it. You're dead on arrival. That that that's correct. And like I said, I've seen it happen uh, a few times. I don't want to say uh, many many times, but I've seen it happen a few times. But uh, you know, I mean, uh, we used to go down there on a Friday night or a Saturday night, and then when I became of driving age. Uh, I got myself a, a GTO, a 1968 GTO convertible, mind you. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, I used to eat Corvettes with that car. Mm. I used to eat Corvettes. Mm. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the Chevelles, the, the Corvettes, the uh, the Mustangs, the, the Dodge Chargers, the Roadrunners, the... And I mean, I can keep going. There was every kind of muscle car you could think of down there racing each other, you know? A lot of them were original motors. A lot of them were, uh, you know, the junkyard motors. But the bottom line is it was just, you know, once it got dark in, you know, July and August, it would go till 3, 4 in the morning. And it was just nonstop. Yeah, you know, and uh, a, quarter mile racing. a lot of money, a lot of money would be put down. Somebody would hold the money if you were racing against oh, one another. Absolutely. You know, the pink slips and, the, you know, you, you, you hear of pink slips, but that is the truth. Yep. You know, you would get down there, and if you had that much confidence in your car, you would go up against somebody that you never met before. Never saw before, never saw his car before, and you would literally bet pink slips, and pink slips are the ownership to the vehicle. Yeah, and if, uh, again, if you had enough confidence in your car, well, then you know, let's do it. And uh, I saw a couple of guys cry at the same time, and know? have and have to walk uh, home, have to walk home because. And, and, that's right. I have to walk home, call, try to call a cab, which in those <laughs> days, uh, you know, there was there, there there weren't even payphones around there. You exactly. Know? <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, what about you in a race? You're ahead, and then you blow out your engine, and then yeah. oh, oh my God, the engine would be on fire. You'd have to have if you had it. A lot of the guys didn't even have the yeah. exhaust. Yeah, a fire extinguisher right. or something like that. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that, that 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 certainly wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't uh, it didn't happen too often uh, where there was a fire extinguisher on the scene, which you would think there would be. But like I said, that's how out of control it was. Yeah, and you the know? cops it, it, almost never came around. Almost never came around. The cops never. I mean, uh, I can say. I'm just going to throw a number out there. Out of 100 nights, maybe three times. Yeah, 75th precinct, and they'd roll by, and that would be it. Because you know what? Many of them, many of them, when they were younger, before they took the test to be a cop, would bring their muscle cars down there. They'd be out there racing. Yep. That's right. They'd be out there racing. I remember a couple of times what they did was they used to open up the fire hydrants, and... Obviously, once they opened up the fire hydrants all the way, it would get everything all wet, 
and you can't race, and it forces you know, with everything wet. Yep. And that would stop us for maybe an hour until everything dried up, and boom, we start our cars and we're racing again. No, it was uh, it was when I explain it to people, and then on occasion you'd have a a group of uh, junkyard dogs, you know. That were like uh, you saw them salivating from the mouth. So right away, oh rabies, rabies, you know, and they were coming through, and everything would stop. Or you'd see like a, a whole family of rats come running through because there were rats everywhere. Not the two-legged types, the oh, four-legged yeah, rats. Oh, nah, yeah, those, those those big suckers. That's right. And then on occasion, you'd be tooling down towards the dump, and you'd see that somebody dumped a body alongside there. And then you say, well, what the hell are we, what the hell are we going to do? We're going to report it to the cops and then we can't race here. Some of these guys would leave the body there and then call the cops once the races were over. Yes. You know, it was a different time, Curtis. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's just things were just so different and, uh, it, 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 it. <laughs> It's amazing how things have changed. Well, it really it, it, Jimmy, it's, it's, it's amazing. amazing that you, your dad, your uncles uh, survived there doing demolition. Right near the Palagonian Bakery, just south of there, towards New Lots Avenue, where the L train is. They're around the block. Christopher right there. I remember it well. In fact, they accused me, Broadway Billy, of taking a guy on the roof and throwing him off the roof there because he was a rapist. They said, you know, it was a white guy who did it. I was the only one living there on Osborne and Hegeman. I said, prove it. Prove it at the 73rd Precinct, right? Prove it. Well, you're the only white guy living it. Prove it. Now, the guy might have slipped. What do you think? You know, maybe fell. Uh, He deserved it. Let's just say that. I had nothing to do with it. But he deserved it. Check this out. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. We don't stop till the break of dawn. This was the theme song. For Bill Clinton's run for the presidency, which he won against all odds against Bush 41 and the loony Kazuni Ross Perot, who's actually ahead in the polls. Unbelievable. And this is the song that was played wherever he and Hillary went. Remember with Al Gore, who's his vice presidential running mate, the two uh, uh, southern uh, stallions there. Hey, did you see uh, Gore over at uh, Davos screaming and hollering, bust, busting the uh, blood vessels? You know, he looked like former Governor Dean. Remember from Vermont in the Iowa primary? It was like, Bleh! we'll have to do a replay of that. That's the anniversary. Uh, uh, Governor Dean, man, born in on Park Avenue, New York City. Son of a doctor, right? A doctor himself. And he was like... On the verge of winning the Democratic nomination to become the president of the United States. And he just completely flipped the script in Iowa. We're nuts. Oh, man, we got to relive that at some point. And like I said, you, you heard our caller there with his demolition business that his father had, his uncles had. 
right there south of the Palagonian Bakery, one block from the New Lots Avenue L train. He told such great narratives, such great stories, and about racing there on Fountain Avenue, which he did, obviously, without a license. I did without a license. The memories, the danger involved. Where are you going to get that from a guest, huh? Broadway Billy, where are you going to get that from a guest, right, Avery? You're not going to have a guest tell stories like that. And the guy survived all that time in Brownsville, never ran, never will. Never had a problem over there. I don't know. What was Jimmy's luck there? I used to have problems there all the time with the brothers. You know, brothers would say, this ain't your hood. I said, it is now. Feet don't fail me now. Poof. Check this out. On the weekend, take a journey with the people's mayor. Curtis Lewa is a politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. I have one thing to say. You better work. Three snaps up. Three snaps. Yeah. It's George Santos, drag queen, live from the streets of Copacabana, Hiponima, in Rio de Janeiro. That's right. A man, woman, frozen vegetable, non-binary, transgender, transvestite, transformer. I don't know what the hell he was. But this guy, the biggest con man ever. And that's saying a lot ever. George Santos, apparently at the age of 16, was living in Brazil with his mother. His mother would go to bingo games and he would be mentored by the drag queen of all drag queens in Rio de Janeiro. And apparently George Santos said to the drag queen, I want to be the number one drag queen in all of Rio de Janeiro. Three snaps up. So naturally, there were lots of different contests that George Santos had to go to. And he had to perform on the runway. And he had to dance. And he had to be in parades. And he had to prepare for the biggest event of all every year in Brazil, in Rio. Carnival. When decadence and debauchery takes place. Have you ever been to Carnival in Rio? Can you even know whether the women are women or the men are men? I mean, you better be sober because you might end up shacking up with someone who looks like a woman but anatomically is a man. And who is that?
And this goes back to my original contention, because so many of you get bent out of shape. You see drag queen reading hour with your children, your grandchildren, whatever. Could I have a little music in the underneath? I need my, my RuPaul drag race here. In honor of, what the hell is he calling himself today? Anthony DeVolder, Anthony Zabrowski, or George Santos? But I told you, this goes back to when we were first watching TV. And look, I'm going to be 69 on March 26th. Milton Burrow. He's a drag queen every week. He's in a dress. In a dress. No, no, no. But that's not, that's not the same thing. Flip Wilson. In fact, what was the female name that Flip Wilson was called? Hmm. Let's see if any of you remember that. Flip Wilson every week in a dress. Drag queen. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WAPC. What was the name that Flip Wilson went by, huh? Surprise, Avery. Uh, you don't remember it because I remember you probably were watching it. Fascinated that this man, Flip Wilson, would be dressed like a woman every week and saying, gee, could that be me? Broadway Billy. Yeah, did you ever have that fantasy that you could be up there on that stage like Flip Wilson? Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. Or like Milton Burrow. When Milton Burrow would be asked the question, hey, are you a transvestite? Are you a. A drag queen. No, no. What are you always dressing up in a dress for, right? Every freaking week. How dare you? Yeah, okay, Greta. It's okay. Calm down, Greta. Our number's 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I really seriously... Why is anybody defending this George Santos? Oh, he's, he's in our tribe. He's our liar. You know, this Joe Biden, that's, that tribe's like, yeah. Yeah, but why does it have to be that if you're a Republican or a conservative, you don't throw this guy under the bus? This guy's lying constantly. And some of you go out and you have demonstrations outside of your libraries where they have, hey, drag queen reading hour for your children and grandchildren. You're bent out of shape over that. doesn't bother me, but it bothers a lot of you. And then here's George Santos, drag queen. Drag queen. And what did he say? Absolutely not. The most recent obsession from the media claiming that I am a drag queen or performed as a drag queen is categorically false. The media continues to make outrageous claims about my life. While I'm working to deliver results, I will not be distracted, not phased by this. Look. Do us a solid. George, or whatever your name is, Anthony Zabrowski, Anthony DeVolder. You got a belt, right? You got shoelaces. You know, it's what I would say to somebody in jail. You know, when they're an eight by four foot cell, I'm leaving you your belt. I'm leaving you your shoelaces. You know what to do. God. Every freaking day. And I hear people, yeah, but... Hold on, it's Joe Biden. He's a liar. Yeah, he's a liar. Does this mean we defend this liar in the 3rd Congressional District? What's the name that you grew up watching every week, Flip Wilson? He was the black Milton Burrow, actually Milton Burrow, the 
white transvestite, transgender, whatever you want to call it. And yet, some of you, like, you go crazy over it. And now, on the far, 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 far right, with all the screwballs there, you got George Santos, a drag queen. Madonna my, huh? Yeah. Three snaps up. She was called Katera. It was over a decade ago. She just wanted you to know. Three snaps up. I wanted to be Miss Drag Queen of Rio. Prepared for Carnival. Have any of you ever been to Carnival? Oh, I've been to Carnival. I have guardian angels in Rio. People dedicate their whole lives to prepare for Carnival. You know, you got Fat Tuesday in New Orleans, okay, and then you got all the parades. Nothing compared to Carnival, where men dress like women and women act like men. And you better stay straight and sober because you're not, you might not be able to differentiate the two. Where decadence and debauchery prevails, whatever happens in Rio stays in Rio. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Kevin in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here on WABC, Kevin. Hey, good morning, sir. Hey, uh, you had some really good uh, Corvette experts on today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. They were, I mean, they were the last guy with the C6 Corvette complaining about the size in the trunk. Well, the C6 and the C5, when they designed it, it was designed for two golf club, uh, two golf bags to fit in there. So both both those cars had that capability. So, you know, Corvette is what it is. It's not a uh, family car. It's a sports car. Oh, damn well. You're not going to get a Corvette for a family, that's for sure. <laughs> and his car, had, his car had 400 horsepower, and the one before it had 350. And interestingly, on his car, which was started in 2005 to about 2013, the C6, uh, if you look at the headlight, that's the first modern non-slip-up headlight type Corvette. Uh, if you look at the parking light, parking light inside that module is that of a 1953 Corvette, the first Corvette. I guarantee you, when you were growing up, you were reading Motor Trend magazine, uh, no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, always had vets. Not, it wasn't like a midlife crisis. It was always always a, it's an Americana thing. It's just a, a cool vehicle. And it's not for everybody, you know. No, no, but it's like Americana. It's like what uh, America is synonymous with. Right, and and you can hear the passion on your callers with these cars. You should do more car shows because, you know, this current administration is basically trying to take away our vehicles, just like you said. Uh, it's it's one administration's agenda, and it's absurd. America loves cars. And, well, uh, also, Kevin, with all the attention that Elon Musk has gotten for his electric cars at Tesla, you would have thought by now somebody make made up a song about it. They haven't. There's not, nothing romantic about a an electric car. You know, it's funny. Uh, just a, a, a side note, note to this: the uh, the lithium ion batteries. I bought a motorcycle uh, that had a secondary battery in it. It was a uh, old police motorcycle. And they had a lithium-ion battery. I never saw one before. It looks like a regular motorcycle battery, a small thing like you'd find in your your, tra- your lawn tractor. And it was light. It was, it was noticeably different. It probably cost 300 something $400. Uh, 
And I didn't replace it with the lithium-ion battery I because uh, it's just too much fun. I put a regular one in the same size, and I'm still driving around with this battery in my, my Jeep. I don't know what to do with it. The, the <laughs> Napa won't take it back. Nobody will take it back. It's illegal to drop it, you know, to get rid of it. Now, this is a little puny motorcycle battery. So what are you going to do in all these car batteries and truck batteries and all these nonsensical things? Where are you going to put these things? Now, you're right. You're right. They haven't yet figured that out. You know, it's uh, sort of like uh, how are you going to recycle those batteries and how are you going to continue to mine the uh, the veins of uh, materials that are needed in order to satisfy the demands that are going to be out there when you're basically trying to convert uh, all your vehicles from burning fossil fuel to riding on a, an electric grid. Like I said, it's, it's one one administration's agenda. And before I forget, your the whole you and Avery thing. You're absolutely right. That that is hysterical. It I is. Think, in I mean, fact, uh, Avery is preparing now. In 24 hours, he will have dissected and bisected everything that Frank Morano has said in the past week, and it is the funniest hour in all of radio. And what's what's brilliant about it? Number one, you should do it two nights in a row. So you, you have enough, you have enough material. What's the the best part about it is, it, like I listen to the show when I'm working, and I at the time I don't find it hysterical. But when Avery starts, get, like you call Avery on the phone, he's kind of like obviously standoffish because he has to sort through hundreds of people. He when he starts laughing and giggling, it it's just like it's just like sunshine in the car. Now you're right, uh, Avery. You see, the audience wants you potentially to do that two mornings a week. Two. Do we have enough material for that, Avery? Uh, do you think you could bisect and dissect enough of what Frank says uh, that we could laugh for two straight hours instead of one? Hysterical. Oh wait, wait, Avery. Avery's pondering that. He's pondering that. He's. He's wondering. What may, what, but what makes it funnier is I listen to the show and at the time, and it's you know, I'm, you don't hear it. And then when Avery's brilliant actually Hello? brings it out, you almost feel stupid because you. How did I miss something so stupid? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pondering it, man. Um, look, uh, I'll and, see what I can do. Oh, this is good. Quick, yeah. This is good. It looks like potential here. Come on, we come on, Avery. The the listeners are demanding this, not just. Saturday try mornings, you know but what? an hour on Sunday morning. If you, if I'm wrong, try it and see if your ratings go up. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about. Come on, Avery, it's all about the ratings. He's absolutely and, right. Kevin is and, correct. And, and real quick, with the uh, Flip Wilson, that was Geraldine. That's right, Geraldine. Now, if you notice, Kevin, every week he came out in a dress, right? Yep. Did kids watch that? Yeah, but it didn't affect. We didn't tell our kids that 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 that's where you're supposed to be. That was just a goof. No, but I'm saying I don't think many kids looked at Flip Wilson as Geraldine and said, "Gee, I want to put on a dress just like Geraldine." Or when I was watching TV and I was watching Milton Berle, I don't think there were many kids. I'm sure there were some who all of a sudden said, "Oh, uh, I'm going to go into mommy's closet and put on her dress." No, I think they thought of it. It was a goof on your mom. That's all. That's the way I thought about it. Exactly, and everyone's getting bent out of shape. Now, what are they going to do? That it turns out that their hero George Santos was a drag queen in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> in, 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 in the, the, 
America? Who knows? <laughs> You're right. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. To fight crime. On the streets of New York and on the air right now, Curtis Lewa on 77 WABC. Nobody has better music conflated to the top topic than yours truly. Eat your heart out, uh, Bo Snurdly, a.k.a. James Golden. You can't rock the mic like this. He tries, right? He tries. He's coming up 7 to 10. But we're, I mean, I'm dedicating this to the drag queen George Santos, Bad Girl by Daya, right? Classic. Wherever you are out there, George, you know, as you're sprucing yourself up with your wig, your nylon stockings, your six-inch stiletto heels, why don't you stab yourself with that six-inch stiletto heel and, and do it. Finish yourself. My God. Now, see, James Golden, a.k.a. Post Nerdy, could never come up with a jam like this. He's probably listening right now saying, oh, man, what a great song, right? How come I don't have an hour to spin stacks of wax? Didn't I DJ, right, Disco, the other week, right, with... I'm such a cornball. Oh, oh, no, because I'm a cornball. No, it's... Very... On WABC. Nah. Nothing is going to go wrong. We feel inside of us that, that everything we have is. You know, Vaughn Harper. James Golden, I knew Vaughn Harper. But it's actually here next Tuesday on Election Day. But every now and then, two people. Trying. Are you kidding me? Nah, you know, Vaughn Harper. WBLS. That nah. certain thing. You know, Frankie Crocker, WBLS. Yeah, let me hear that. Dyer. Dedicated to you, uh, George Santos, whatever you are today. Man, woman, frozen vegetable, non-binary, transvestite, transgender, transformer. You're a con man. See, I bet you never heard that song before, right? Bad Girl by Daya, D-A-Y-A. Anyway, let's go to the phones. It's Ken calling from Huntington. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Ken. Well, good morning, Curtis Lewa. Yes, Ken. Good morning to you, too. I heard you had a uh, question regarding our friend Laura Curran. Yes. I wanted to give you my answer. Sure. I believe his name that Bernie McGurk used to yell 
about was Todd Kaminsky. Yes. Every day. Every day I remember he would get on the microphones and he would urge the people because he lived in that state Senate district. Todd Kaminsky, he'd say, we must do everything to make sure that he is not elected Nassau County District Attorney. Thank God they did. The voters listened. And that he's not reelected to the state Senate. And he decided, uh, knowing the odds against him were uh, uh, enormous, that he would not run for office again as state senator. And he's going to go out and get a job hanging wallpaper. And it was literally her downfall. She took, can you imagine this? This guy, Jacobs, who is the county party leader, the Democrats now, he's uh, then, and the state leader also, the Cuomo appointee. Tells her, take the Facebook picture with Kaminsky. It, it looked like it was a hostage video. She was in a hostage video, and it caused her the election. She lost her position because of that. She was a rising star, and she fell back to earth. Well, she does a podcast here, and it was interesting. We had a conversation with her the other day, the pollster McLaughlin. She was interviewing, and I happened to step in. And she was talking about potentially becoming an independent candidate, very similar to what you saw Cinema do in Arizona, the U.S. senator who was a Democrat, and now she identifies herself as a independent. It would be an excellent move for her, but she still has to denounce what she did with her support with Todd Kaminsky. Oh, boy. And you you know that she's going to take that with her in perpetuity. Uh, if anybody out there knows Todd, you remember this guy was introduced to me in five towns years ago. He had just left the U.S. Attorney's Office, Eastern District, as a prosecutor. People were telling me, the uh, Jewish people, that was, oh, this guy's going to be the future governor. I said, why? Well, he's a tough prosecutor, you know. Meantime, he's the guy who wrote the bill, the no-bail bill, and then uh, did another version of it uh, that was passed by the state Senate. Obviously, they had the uh, supermajority and the uh, uh, state assembly. And again, signed by Andrew Evilized Cuomo. Andrew Evilized Cuomo cannot all of a sudden distance himself from that. He could have vetoed that legislation. He instead signed it into law. And it's been an albatross around our neck ever since. Absolutely. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Now, you know who the uh, Nassau County uh, executive is who beat Laura Curran? That would be our boy, Mr. Blakeman. Who cannot chew gum and think at the same time. (laughs) I mean, he, 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 he came here one time to WABC. He had like six detectives with him, you know, uh, undercover. I said, they couldn't pick this guy out of a lineup. What the hell is he got six undercover detectives as part of his detail? Oh, boy, do they love to waste money out in Nassau County. By the way, remember, Nassau County, one of the richest and wealthiest suburbs in America, went Chapter 11. They have a fiscal control board that monitors the spending. And, man, I'm telling you, I know why so many people flee Nassau County, flee Suffolk County, flee the five boroughs of the city of New York, flee the mid-Hudson Valley, and are heading to Florida. Tomorrow in 24 hours, we're going to give you an update 
most astounding figures in yet about the flight of residents of New York State, of Long Island, of New York City to Florida, of Jersey, of Connecticut to Florida, making it uh, the number one destination in America for people fleeing their states. Number one in America. And the mass exodus out of central and western New York, where it's like ghost towns. Uh, the very reason that uh, the uh, junior senator who has decided Gillibrand she's going to run for re-election, even though she was off the radar screen, announcing two years early, she knows she's going to be challenged by someone on the uh, DSA left. Gillibrand, who used to be Annie Oakley, uh, Miss Second Amendment, and then all of a sudden the schmuck, the putz, Chuck E. Cheese Schumer said, hey, would you like to replace Hillary Rodham Clinton as the uh, Democratic candidate to be U.S. Senator? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you got to give up being Annie Oakley and Second Amendment. In fact, you got to melt down all your shotguns, your handguns, and your rifles. Oh, anything to be U.S. Senator. Talk about somebody who couldn't chew gum and think at the same time. I'm not talking Gillibrand. I'm talking Caroline Kennedy, who was her opposition put up by the billionaire Bloomberg and the president then Barack Obama, but who won the battle? The schmuck, the putz, Chuck E. Cheese Schumer. Check this out. On the weekend, take a journey with the people's mayor. Curtis Lewa is a politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep, and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Oh, yeah. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa.
and he introduced this song to Mark Levin, who plays this from time to time. In fact, in 24 hours, we'll play the cut Broadway Bill Lee in which Mark Levin actually is speaking while this song is playing on his nationally syndicated show that you can hear every Monday through Friday from 6 to 9. And he goes, oh, that's a Curtis Sliwa jam. Yeah. Who would ever think that Mark Levin would be listening to this uh, electronic dance music classic, Deadmau5 and Cascade? You never heard of that before, did you? Because nobody's going to sleep, not until the break of dawn. When you're on my ride, you don't get out. You got to ride for six hours. Take that, James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurdly. I remember, I remember many things, and on Friday morning, I was on with uh, Sid Rosenberg and friends, 705. Andrew Giuliani was co-hosting uh, the morning. And they were like for toots. And all they were talking about was, oh, oh, Jones at quarterback for the Giants. Shawkon Barkley, you know, at running back. And, oh, the Giants were going to beat the Philadelphia Eagles in their backyard in Philadelphia. And look, I'm a tried and true Giant fan. I've been a Giant fan longer than, obviously, Sid Rosenberg, who is really a Jet fan. Although, he obviously is knowledgeable about the Giants. Andrew Giuliani, yes, definitely a Giant fan. And his father, Rudy Giuliani, clearly a Giants fan. That Rudy will be hosting a watch party tonight at his home. He's invited Sid, actually his son Andrew, and Sid invited Eric Adams, swagger man with no plan, who knows nothing about football. You know he's not a football fan. You know Eric Adams ain't showing up at the Giuliani soiree, that's for sure. But even Rudy is of the belief that the Giants can beat the Philadelphia Eagles later today in Philadelphia. And I would say this. If you're a one-issue voter... Give us your oh, prediction. <laughs> prediction, Giants-Eagles, who wins on Saturday? I got it. I have to go with the Giants. I just said, I know it's... Yes. Uh, however, young team, nobody told them they can lose. They looked they look like that uh, last week. They look like a young team, and we're just going to do what needed to win. You know, they may they may be a little bit... Uh, they're, not, they're, not, they're not killers. But they're, they're terrific uh, in the red zone. So I got to go with them. And I know the Eagles are the better team, but we've beaten better teams before. And the Giants are playing their best football. Yeah, heard, right, Andrew chiming in there with the father, right? I mean, yeah, look. I know your heart is in the right place. You're supporting the New York Giants. But I'm going to have to take you on the, tra- I'll call it a trail of tears. The Giant fans have had to suffer through when dealing with the Philadelphia Eagles. You know, they have the theme song. What is that? Fly, Eagles, fly. We'd like the Eagles to crash, Eagles, crash. I just don't see it happening. You know, we saw what could have been devastating. In fact, they're replaying that game. 
that was suspended when Hillman, the defensive back for the Buffalo Bills, got hit right in his chest and, remember, went down. Apparently he had two separate heart attacks or strokes or along those lines. He was in really bad shape. He was on a ventilator, and then he's recovered. He's been socially networking uh, since. Uh, he obviously uh, gave a big shout-out to his team that's favored to uh, get to the Super Bowl and win it just because of all this momentum that they've had and the fact that they've been snowed out of a lot of events. Well, they're going to continue that game from start in honor of Hillman. Hillman will probably be back playing football again, professional football. And I know a lot of people are suggesting, no, that would be extraordinarily dangerous. Let me take you back, if you're a Giant fan or just a football fan, how really hard-hitting this game is and how it used to be compared to the way it is now. Can I have a little of that music underneath me, uh, that I introduced uh, Mark Levin to, Dead Mile 5 and Cascade, the EDM, electronic dance music. Imagine, I even had Mark Levin become a fan. We'll play that in 24 hours. You'll hear him playing this song on his own show. I, I think you're playing, uh, you're not playing uh, Dead Mile 5. We just, oh, no, no, you can come in with Tycho here. Tycho, no, no, that's fine. Keep it keep it right on the dial here. That's fine. Eh? Keep the right mood there. That's right. Tycho, Colombo, a walk. Nice and low here. Broadway, Bill Lee. Because I'm taking uh, football fans, giant fans, on the Trail of Tears. Look, we've had a lot to be joyous about. We've had many victories uh, and uh, Super Bowl victories to be joyous about. But I'm taking you back before there was anything ever considered to be a Super Bowl. I remember Dick Modulesky playing in the line with Andy Robustelli, Jim Catcavage, and Rosie Greer. These guys had to work in the offseason. You know, they couldn't just survive on a football salary. They had to work in the offseason, selling suits like a haberdashery. Back then, later on, they became um, selling stocks on Wall Street. I remember they had him. Ernie Coy came out of Texas Tech. And then there was a guy who came out of, I think it was Clemson or Alabama, Oh, man, he was like he was going to be the star of all stars. And in the offseason, he was selling stocks on Wall Street with Ernie Coy. Who is that back that I'm talking about? Well, I'll tell you who it is. You don't even have to answer a courtesy with Super's Sports Spectacular. It was Tucker Fredrickson, remember? The baby bulls in the back. It was Tucker Fredrickson, and it was Ernie Coy. More importantly, Dick Lynch in the backfield. Remember Dick Lynch and Sam Huff, middle linebacker, coming out of West Virginia. He would always try to plug up the hole against uh, Jim Brown, the best back maybe ever to play football. Actually, a better lacrosse player, believe it or not, from out in uh, Long Island. Went to Syracuse. Then he might have been as a football player. But anyway, I digress. So it was 1960. We're playing the Philadelphia Eagles. And 
This was a legal tackle, maybe one of the most vicious that were ever made. And we just talked about Gilman being knocked out, although that wasn't really a vicious tackle. I got a chance to see it years later. I remember hearing it first on the radio. It was Concrete Charlie. You know who Concrete Charlie is? Uh, Broadway Bill Lee and Avery. Avery who knows his football, but probably never heard of Concrete Charlie. Concrete Charlie was the last two-way football player in the NFL. He played both offense and defense. And he retired in 1959, but his team said, look, you come back. You'll be a substitute. We need you really on the bench. We need you as a linebacker. His name, Chuck Bedarnik. They called him Concrete Charlie. They were playing the New York Giants in 1960. And it was incredible because Frank Gifford was the star of the Giants. He had been the MVP in like 1956. He was like, you know, he was like an Adonis there. And all of a sudden, he was running towards the sidelines because time was running out. It was 17 to 10. And the Giants were looking to tie. And Chuck, or as I call him, Concrete Charlie, came out of nowhere and, I mean, smashed Frank Gifford. Smashed him. So much so that he was out the next two years. The next Two years, Frank Gifford did not play football for the New York Giants. That's how hard Chuck had hit him, member of the Philadelphia Eagles. That was 1960. The hit knocked Gifford unconscious. He was unconscious. He did not move. They thought that he had possibly died on the field. They brought a stretcher out. He departed the stadium in an ambulance. The doctor for the Giants called the injury a deep concussion. His teammate, uh, Sam Huff, the middle linebacker, and Pat Summerall later said that they feared Gifford was dead. Dead. Two years he was out. These Eagles. Let me tell you something. They're double trouble. And look, we've gotten the best of the Eagles from time to time. Can I hear Rudy Giuliani again there? You know, he's, uh, he's, he's talking with his heart, not with his head here. Please, let me hear that. Give us your oh. prediction. <laughs> <laughs> prediction, Giants, Eagles, who wins on Saturday? I got it. I have to go with the Giants. I just have, I know it's the Yes. Uh, however, young team, nobody told them they can lose. They looked they look like that uh, last week. They look like a young team, and we're just going to do what needed to win. You know, they may they may be a little bit uh, they're not they're not they're not killers, but they're they're terrific uh, in the red zone. So I got to go with them, and I know the Eagles are the better team, but we've beaten better teams before. And the Giants are playing their best football. That is his uh, son weighing in, Andrew. And again, what are they doing? They're weighing in. Telling you, mistake, mistake. Ugh. Mm, 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 mm. Where'd we get this? Good call, Broadway Billy. Good call. 
I mean, you think of the Bills, Hamlin, facing a long recovery, right? Frank Gifford was out for two years. He had been the MVP in the NFL in 56. He was all world. Because Concrete Charlie smashed him. Legal. Nobody said it was a dirty tackle. He hit him head on. A lot harder than I got hit the other day while escorting my wife, Nancy, who is like uh, the second coming of Helen Keller now. She's almost blind. Across the street to catch the Crosstown bus. Man, that woman on a bicycle just crashed into me. And the guy getting off the bus looked at me, and there's no love for me in the Upper West Side, and said, ah, Curtis has been shot before. He'll be okay. Oh, yeah, the empathy and the sympathy was just, like, overwhelming. But anyway, I'm a tried and true Giant fan, but I remember that. I remember how the Eagles are, man. I'm telling you. Yeah, I hate to bust everybody's bubble, but, you know, there's a lot of money on this game. Oh, Jones, at quarterback. Nah. Shaq on Barkley, he's been playing ping pong all week with Frank Morano, right? That ain't going to do it. Just thinking back then, how I'd be listening to the Giant games, the great Marty Glickman from Yankee Stadium on the radio, always better on the radio, theater of the mind. I remember years later, Fran Tarkington, they got over Man, Fran Tarkington, man, he was a scrambling man. He had to with the Giants back then. Hey, we're lousy. Every halftime, right before halftime at Yankee Stadium, Marty Glickman would announce uh, Fran Tarkington fading back right before the end of the half. Hail Mary pass. He'd have Homer Jones running a fly pattern straight down. Henry Carr, who had won two gold medals, in the 64 Olympics, although couldn't catch a football if his life depended on it, and Spider Lockhart, who was a defensive back, and they would just run straight down the field. Fran Tarkington would juke and jive, and be running all over the place. And I remember Lily of the Dallas Cowboys was, like, ready to smash him, the all-time great defensive tackle. And he'd duck, and he'd juke, and he'd jive, and he'd throw it all the way down the field. And they never get a touchdown. But it was always great entertainment right before the end of the half with the great voice of Marty Glickman, the announcer. Oh, man, that's when the Giants were in basement birth of territory. You know who the coach was? Ali Sherman, Brooklyn College. He was the quarterback for Brooklyn College. How did he become the head coach when also you had as coaches Vince Lombardi, who went on to become coach of the Green Bay Packers, but he was, I believe the defensive coach for the Giants, and you had Tom Landry, the offensive coach for the Giants, who went on to be coach of the new Dallas Cowboy franchise. And who did we end up with? Ali Sherman, who uh, did well his first year, but then didn't do well until uh, Michael Matichich, Rudy Giuliani, who you just listened to, appointed Ali Sherman to be head of off-track betting when Rudy was elected a mayor in 1993. Uh, did I take you around the world on that one? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And if that wasn't bad enough, Concrete Charlie smashing. Frank Gifford, imagine he's out for two years. What was it, about 44 years ago, MetLife Stadium? 
The Giants were running out the clock against the Philadelphia Eagles. Joe Pasarczyk was the quarterback. He flubbed a handoff to Larry Zonka. And then Herman Edwards, who was the defensive back for the Eagles, who later on became coach of the New York Jets, scooped up the ball for a stunning Philly win. Had to be one of the worst defeats in the history of the NFL, and it was at the hands of the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, yeah. Love that music. That's strike one. Strike two. And then strike three. And I know there are some Philadelphia Eagle fans listening out there. I want the Eagles to crash. You know, their theme song is Fly, Eagle, Fly. I want them to crash, but I don't think it's going to happen. Broadway, Bill Lee and Avery. It was December 15th of 1968 at Franklin Field, where they used to run all the track and field meets. Franklin Field. That's where the Eagles played. And they were playing the Minnesota Vikings. It was halftime. The score was tied 7-7. So Santa Claus came out with the reindeer and all the elves. And the Philadelphia Eagle fans threw snowballs at Santa Claus and the and the reindeer and the elves. And Santa Claus had to run for his life. This was on the Philadelphia Eagles' home field, the old Franklin Field, where they used to run all the track meets. You think we stand a chance against the Philadelphia Eagles later on today? I mean, let's be real, man. Get out of here. No way. I'm sorry. You know, we've beaten the Eagles before. I get it. But I just have a sense that they're going to smash the Giants to smithereens. And then they're crazy fans. They're like barbarians. They're like Huns. They're like Vikings. They're going to descend onto the field. They're going to tear up the turf. They're going to tear down uh, the... uh... And they're crazy, man. The Philadelphia Philly fans. Oh, make that eagle. Hey, Philly fans, too. They stab each other in the parking lot there outside of Philly Stadium. But the Eagle fans are the absolute worst. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Man, you couldn't be more hopelessly wrong, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Can I hear that one more time? I can't believe that Rudy Giuliani would, would allow his heart to dominate his football selection instead of his head. Come on, Rudy. Give us your oh. prediction. <laughs> prediction, Giants, Eagles. Who wins on Saturday? I got it. I have to go with the Giants. I just, I know it's. Yes. Uh, however, young team. Nobody told them they can lose. They looked. They looked like that uh, last week. They looked like a young team, and we're just going to do it. Needed to win. You know, they may. They may be a little bit. Uh, sure. They're not. They're not. They're not killers, but they're they're terrific uh, in the red zone. So I got to go with them. And I know the Eagles are the better team, but we've beaten better teams before. And the Giants are playing their best football. Look at that. Both Giuliani's weighing in there with their heart instead of their head. Ted Rosenberg, right? He was looking at the point spread. You know, degenerate gamblers always look at the point spread. They, they don't go with their heart.
bigger with the spread. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. It just ain't going to happen. It just ain't going to happen. And we'll be on the air at that point. Now, many of you will have an opportunity to pimp slap me if I'm wrong and say, what kind of a giant fan are you, huh? You traditor? Or you'll be calling me up and saying, yep, you were right on your Curtis Lee with Super Sports Spectacular Prediction. I'm picking the Eagles over the Giants. Remember, it's in their backyard. It might as well be a junkyard. I know it's 1-800-848-9222. All night long. This is another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. It's another side of midnight. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. Everybody was coming for Having to be at Geno's, you know, getting your uh, your hoagies, and they see you come in dressed in uh, giant blue. The Eagles fans, they better start throwing spinning hill kicks and reverse punches. Those those fans, they're, they're like psychos, psychotic. Had a jail cell in the old veteran stadium, man. They used to keep a an arraignment judge right there that was snatching those Philadelphia Eagle fans right out of the stands, locking them up. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Baruch, who's calling from Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Baruch. Yeah, no, it's Baruch, like Baruch College. Yeah, like Baruch College. You mean the college that, uh, uh. Bernard Baruch, Bernard Baruch. That George Santos did not go to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have the, you asked the question where, where they originate the, the word raining cat and, and dogs. The original is from the 1600 or 1700 in London. They have no sewer system, no drainage system. So when it rained, the streets were flooded. And after this, you could see dead dogs and cats, and may- maybe even mice. And this when it originated. Oh, hold on a second. Hold on, Baruch. That's going to gross my wife out, Nancy, who will be joining me Sunday in the most listened to, most requested, most called in to of the many hours that I do on the weekends when I finish the Quinella. 
with WABC. The acronym stands for Always Broadcasting Curtis. That's the Animal Welfare Hour from 11 to 12. I don't even want to bring that up to her. You know, what's the whole thing about it's raining cats and dogs like it was earlier in the day? Let's see if Mike in uh, Montclair knows uh, what the hell uh, I'm leading in the direction of. I, I have to agree with the last caller, Curtis. Um, it seems that um, the sewer systems were so poor that they would flood. And when the water subsided, or subsided rather, um, there was uh, animals that uh, were drowned. And it, it appeared that it rained so hard that it left cats and dogs and other animals now, we're talking London or Paris here? Uh, actually, Paris um, in the Victorian era in the 17, 1600s. And I just had a film crew come over from the uh, uh, French uh, talking about rats because they've had to close the Eiffel Tower down for three days because mm-hmm. of rat infestation in the tower and in the garden right below it. And I kept telling them, you got to use cats. Oh, we use pesticides. I say, oh, and where did it get you? You you had to close the Eiffel Tower for three days because of rat infestation. Nobody will listen to me, Mike. I don't know, Curtis. You're you're the man. I also wanted to. Uh, I was curious if you you and Avery were invited to Frank's uh, watch party tonight. What? Yeah, he's having a giant uh, watch party at his house, and. Uh, he, he's uh, going to have a lot of food, and he invited a lot of guests. I was wondering if you guys were invited. Avery, were you uh, invited to the uh, watch party that Frank Morano is hosting tonight in uh, South Shore of Staten Island for the uh, Giants-Eagles game? Were you invited, Avery? Let me find out. Nope. What? No, I wasn't. Were you invited, Broadway Billy? Mike, I wasn't invited either. No, I, neither was I, Curtis. Neither was I. I, I, I uh, the rumor was that he um, he's going to have a bowl of uh, pen caps um, in case anyone wants to stick one in their ear while they're watching the game. I came out of the closet recently. You're right. His fame. His fame is. He did a half-hour show in which he talked about taking paper clips, opening them up, and then cleaning the wax out of his ears, Mike. Yeah. Boy, he's a real sickola, isn't he? That's a strange habit. I would agree with that. Thank you very much for that information. It is uh, very disarming, uh, very disconcerting. And Once again, uh, we were banned from the barbecue. Then we were banned from the birthday party for Carmine. In fact, uh, Avery uh, said they wouldn't even let him deliver Domino's pizzas to the barbecue. Marijuana is the flame. Heroin is the fuse. LSD is the bomb. And now we see that we haven't been invited for the watch party at the Shea Murano residence with Rachel Carmine Frank and all of his friends, I guess we're his foes and his fiends. Foes and fiends here. What a disgraziata. Our numbers one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 
This is Another Side of Midnight with Curtis Lewa. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. Now I know some of you club goers out there, you've got now... You're looking to see if there's a diner open anywhere that you can get some greasy eggs, some toast, with a cup of coffee. But, you know, they should let me do an EDM show here. They really should, Broadway Bill Lee. Between you and I, you know, you can uh, grab some of the selections. I can hit the turntables with my electronic dance music, and we can we can light it up. You know, Vinny Matunio, he's, he's making his bones. Nobody does it better than uh, Cousin Bruce. He's on from 6 to 10, and then Tony Orlando without Dawn. But why can't I have an hour just to spin electronic dance music? Look, even Mark Levin plays my EDM selections, which you'll hear in 24 hours. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Richie in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Richie. Hi, Curtis. Good morning. How are you? Uh, what do you think, Richie? I got smashed by uh, a woman on a bicycle the other morning while escorting my wife across the street who's loud like Helen Keller. How do you think I am? I hope you feel better. I'm sorry to hear that. Um I wanted to ask you what you think the safest neighborhood in Brooklyn is. Right now, I'm on my morning exercise. I walk around Marine Park in the morning, almost every morning, and uh, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so it ain't it, it, it ain't Marine Park, that's for sure, and um, it ain't Mill Basin. I will tell you, the safest community in all of Brooklyn, the largest borough by itself, would be the fourth largest city in the United States is Seagate, the private community, which if you approach it on the Coney Island Strip, you reach it, it looks like it's all barricaded up. It's got its own private police force. Uh, So, yeah, I would say uh, per square inch, it is the safest in Brooklyn, but it's got an advantage. It's a private community, and you can't get in without having a pass. What about ones that aren't private, then? Ooh, that's 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 a tough call. That's a tough call because all of, <laughs> all of the communities, unfortunately, are having a problem. I'm telling you, you know, Park Slope used to be relatively quiet. Park Slope right. in the 70s uh, was one of the worst neighborhoods in the city. You know, it had a lot of shootings. It had a lot of muggings. It was mostly Puerto mm-hmm. Rican and Irish. The Italians were over in Carroll Gardens. Then all of a sudden, you know, it was gentrified, no crime problems. Lately, they've had smashing grabs at the jewelry stores, vicious smashing grabs, uh, a lot of shoplifting, a lot of boosting out of uh, stores on 7th Avenue. That's where they, uh, right down the block from where Comrade Bill de Blasio, the part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope, has a house with Charlene as they do pop-up pass uh, with the Maui Waui and Hindu Kush. But that's become a real hotbed of criminal activity I can't really say a normal neighborhood in Brooklyn any longer is uh, safe. Really right, can't. Now where, the experience. Now, now, where are you from originally? 
I grew up in uh, I grew up in uh, Mill Basin. I live in Marine Park now. Okay, Mill Basin. You grew up in Mill Basin. You live in Marine Park. Uh, have you yeah. run across any problems when you're out walking around in the wee hours in the morning? Uh, no, actually, I'm walking around the park. There's a police car right in the parking lot here with the lights flashing. Um, never had a problem. Not one. Now, uh, do you live near the Paddockett Basin? Uh, the Paddockett Basin. Oh, oh, what is that? The creek right across the street from the park, you mean? Yes, that's the creek. Yep. And yep, uh, I live right. And you lived there how many years? How many years, Richie? Uh, almost 30 years. Uh, do you remember the house? The uh, It's very gauche. Uh, a Vinny gas uh, pipe uh, queso? Vinny gas pipe queso. The house there. Where, in Marine Park? Yeah, man. Let me tell you something. Oof. Boy, that, I think I better save that one. What do you think, uh, Broadway Bill Lee? That, that's a story in and of itself. I right, like it. Rich is out there walking around. He's with me to the break of dawn there, Marine Park, originally from Mill Basin. Uh, let's go to uh, Lenny, who's calling from Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Lenny. Hi, Curtis. How are you? How do you think I am, Lenny? I got smashed by a woman know, on a bicycle. Hey, 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 Curtis, let's just talk about the Eagles. The, the incident with Santa Claus, and it was disgusting, was in Veterans Memorial Stadium. The Eagles played in Franklin Field from 58 to 70. And then they moved, they moved, they moved there from Connie Mack Stadium for the 58 season. Then they moved to the vet and now they, they're in this, uh, whatever it's called now, where, uh, down there. But it was all the stadiums were down there together. The Spectrum, JFK Stadium, everything was down in that one area of Philadelphia. Right, so I'm saying that the snowball incident with Santa Claus occurred in 68 at Franklin Field. I thought it was in the 70s. No, no, look. You, uh, you could be right. You oh, could. Okay, you, if you're right, you're right. Okay, if it was 68, then it was Franklin Field. Well, the reason I remember that is because I was familiar with Franklin Field because every year... Wide world of sports, the thrill of victory, the agony of uh, defeat, the agony of defeat. would uh, would uh, sort of do uh, uh, a whole piece on the uh, relay races that they would have. relays. Right. Mm-hmm. Right there in Franklin last, Field. Last weekend, last weekend in April. That's right. Excellent. Wow. You're sharp. You're right on it. So now, seeing all the emotion for the Giants here at WABC earlier on Friday... If your life depended on it, who do you pick later on today, Eagles or Giants, at, I guess they call it the Link Stadium? The Link, yeah, Lincoln Financial. Well, I'm a diehard Giant fan, so i got to stay with them. But, you know, they're, they're playing, as far as I'm concerned, Curtis, with house money. When they made the playoffs, it was house money. And they, yeah, they got nothing to lose. And they're just, everything is there in place for the future. And I want to give a shout-out the assistant general manager, Brandon Brown, because I was one of his high school football coaches at St. Anthony's on Long Island. He graduated in 2006, played at Fordham, and then got a law degree from Flagler University in Florida. Hmm. St. Anthony's. Now, St. Anthony's was that? Yeah. No, go ahead. No, it, not Flag- it wasn't Flagler. That's upset. I forgot the one down uh, 
down in South Florida. Um, oh, that's just, okay. Uh, north of Miami. But yeah. anyway, go ahead. That's okay. But he went to St. Anthony's out in uh, Long Island? Yes, he, he graduated in 06. Oh, man, you are uh, you like, uh, you're on it. You on it here. Now, do you got any money on this game? No, nope, I'm not a gambler. Good. Good. Because uh, I, I I don't gamble. Uh I uh, you know, just not my thing. I I don't think I could ever enjoy watching an event where I had to be worried about points and everything. I just want to watch the game. But that's the problem now because of uh, all the online gambling, FanDuel and all the rest. And that's all. When I, when I hear these young guys here at WABC talking, it, everything's point spread, over, under, you know. Oh. It's, it's, just, it's taking well, the, the joy out of the game. Curtis, I'm still coaching high school football. And let me tell you, I see these kids, and they don't sit down on a Saturday or Sunday watch a football game, especially on a Sunday. They watch football. They think they watch the football game because they watch the, watch the, the red zone. Yeah. All they saw was highlights. They didn't watch the football game. Yeah. Now, which high school do you coach at? Right now, I'm at New Hyde Park. All right. On Long Island. I, I remember uh, a quick dedication, um, JV football team to Coach Duffy, who was from West New York, who uh, would smoke like four packs of Chesterfields a day. You know, uh, Coach Duffy. Yeah. <laughs> So we're in the locker room. Now, we were not a very good football team. Brooklyn Prep, before I had gone there, had some pretty damn good football teams. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, that's where the uh, Paternos came out of, who uh, ended up obviously being sullied at Penn State. But I remember we're in the locker room, and here's Coach Tuffy with the priest saying, let's say a prayer. Everybody comes off the field, you know, goes home the same way they came to the field. Then we're, we walk out to the gridiron, right, and he's looking at us. I was playing uh, outside linebacker, and he goes, you guys got to take out that quarterback. I don't care if you break his leg. Whatever it takes, he's killing us. I mean, it's the same guy. Yeah. That's praying before the game. Right. We're praying that nobody gets injured. The quarterback was killing us. He definitely was. And they were running sweeps in my direction. I was only 155 pounds. I had to be like the crackback. I had to go in there and try to take out the fullback who was leading the charge. And they had both guards pulling. This was Monsignor Fowl, which was a powerhouse. Oh, great program. A great program. Yeah, they had an A team, a B team, a C team, and a D team. (laughs) So he looks at all of us because we're losing like – at that point, it was like 21 nothing, And he goes, guys, guys, you got to take out the quarterback. You got to break his leg. And I'm saying to myself, what is that? Didn't we say prayers that everybody walks home in the same condition they came to the field? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. But that's that's what it is yeah. with football. And I don't think people realize because, you know, we, we talked about how Hamlin almost perished, almost died from cardiac arrest. Yes. And I immediately thought of Concrete Charlie, of the Philadelphia Eagles. Right. Smashing Frank Gifford, star of all stars. He was out for two years. Yeah. Clean hit. My friend's sister was at the game. My friend's sister was at the game. She's older than us, and she said that she thought he was dead. 
Yeah, his own. He went down. His own players thought he was dead, and yet remember, we're thinking Hamlin might come back next year. I hope he doesn't, because yeah. I think he, he'd really be taking a risk. But Frank Gifford was out for two straight years. He had been the NF, NFL MVP in '56. Yep. Uh, yeah, well, I'm old enough, Curtis. I was five years old, and I don't remember doing it. But my father said I cried around the radio because my father was so upset when Alan Amici scored the touchdown that I started crying. Oh, Baltimore coach, Johnny Unitas, yep, yep. Yeah, in overtime, in overtime. Uh, Curtis, I, um, my dad worked in Brooklyn. I grew up on Long Island, and um, my dad worked in Bushwick Savings Bank on Grand Street and Graham Avenue. I know you mean Graham. Graham, okay. Graham Avenue over in uh, Williamsburg. Yeah. He worked for Bushwick Savings Bank. He started there in 1940, and he, he retired from there, <coughs> excuse me, in 1982. Oh, man. It, it, had then be, it then become Anchor Savings Bank, but it, it, it was, uh, you know, he's still working at the same place. Sheesh. Well, you got your... There was loyalty. There was loyalty in jobs, Curtis. Oh, no, no. I, I remember some. Uh, most times you would get a job and you'd work your entire life for that company. Most yes. most times they were very grateful, but sometimes uh, they treated you like Drek, like you were a person of no consequence. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. On the weekend, take a journey with the people's mayor. Curtis Lewa is a politician who says don't trust politicians. It's another side of midnight with Curtis Lewa. The iconic, the legendary Curtis Lewa. This city doesn't sleep and neither does Curtis Lewa on another side of midnight. Oh, yeah. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC. Here's Curtis Lewa. Dedicated to uh, the drag queen George Santos, wherever he, she, it may be, non-binary, transvestite, transgender, transformer, what a disgraziata, what a shanda. There's still people supporting him. Oh, well, you know, he's, he's our liar. He's not like Joe Biden, their liar. Please, get rid of this guy. Yeah, bad girl. Bad girl, George Santos. Bad girl. Let's go to Linda, who's calling from Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Linda. Good morning, Curtis. God bless you and your and your own wife, too. Thank I you. hope you recover as Thank soon you. as possible. Thank you. Thank you. So what I wanted to tell you, previous caller already said, Geraldine, because, you know, Cliff Wilson used to say, what you see is what you get. Right. Flip Wilson, every week in address as Geraldine. Before that, you had the, the number one TV star when TV first came out, Milton Berle, every week in address. Yeah, and you know who else? You had Martin Lawrence, and then in Living Color, you had the Wayne Brothers. Yep. And the other actors. And then you also, of course, Medea, Tyler Perry. But you know what I wanted to suggest to you? Since you love music, I love music too. I'm from Brooklyn, Crown Heights. I was thinking about everybody, you know, all the other radio shows do it. What about a party boat? 
in the summer. A party boat. That's right. Not a circle line. Uh, that's all for the tourists, but a party boat. For our listeners, we did that in the four years that I'll never get back, Linda, when I was at AM 970, the answer, doing AM drive and PM drive. Uh, that worked out pretty uh, damn good. So I'll, I'll suggest it to uh, John and Margot Katsimatidis, our owners and operators of our parent company, Red Apple Media. That's a, that's a great idea, Linda. Oh, okay. You take care. God bless you. Cruise for the listeners. You know, there was a cruise I went on to uh, Italy, France, and Spain, a Mediterranean cruise. At the time, it was me and Kubi in the mornings for our listeners. I couldn't wait to jump off that ocean liner. Oh, my God. My dad's a merchant seaman 54 years. I hate being out at the ocean. I feel like I'm trapped. Trapped. Let's go to Pete, who's calling from Queens. Uh, your turn to be heard here at WABC, Pete. Good morning, Curtis. Good morning, Curtis. Yes, Pete. You know what the difference between you and Sid Rosenberg is? I'll tell you. You can hold your show by yourself, and you're very good at it, whereas the other guy needs guests coming in all the time. And uh, I tell you, I really enjoy listening to you. You're smart. You're fast. You have great conversation. And they should put you on in the morning instead of the other guy. That's just my opinion. Well, remember, Pete, I've been on mornings. I've done morning drive three different cycles, three different cycles. So uh, it's Sid's time. You know, he was on with Bernard. Unfortunately, Bernard uh, McGurk had that untimely uh, exit from this plane. Uh, That's a great show. Uh, Sid, you know, he gets his opportunity to... uh, do his thing. Normally, morning uh, talk radio has a lot of guests. When I did morning talk here, we had guests also. I just, I don't like guests, Pete. I, I really much prefer talking to the listeners and riffing theater of the mind. You can't really do that in the mornings because everybody, they want a little bit of their news, their information, you know. They don't have a lot of time to listen because they're in between getting into their car, getting out of their car, catching the train, catching the bus. It's a whole different dynamic, Pete. Well, the bottom line at the end of the day, I think you're more talented, to be honest with you. You've been around a long time. And like I said, when you have your show, you do it by yourself, one-on-one. Yeah, you, you have listeners and everybody calling in. But still, every topic, you're you right on, on spot on everything. Whereas the other guy, first of all, I, I don't listen to the guy anymore in the morning. I, I just don't. When, when Bernie died, uh, I kind of left. And the other guy is just too into himself. He's, he's promoting himself constantly, and I don't oh, like man. that. Well, and, he, uh, Pete, he's like a, he's like a peacock. Yeah. But notice, but anyway, Pete. That's why he gets along so well with Eric Adams, Swagger Man with No Plan, because they wear these customized suits. They look at one another. It's sort of like metrosexual love. And I've told uh, Sid, I said, don't ever get in a hot tub with Eric Adams. Don't ever get into a hot tub because, you know, it's two metrosexuals. Who's more metro and more sexual than the other? Let's go to Richie in College Point. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Richie Rich. Hey, that's my nickname. Hey, Curtis, how are you? 
Uh, how do you think I am, Richie? You've been listening. I got smashed by a woman on a bicycle the other day while escorting my Helen Keller wife across the street. Hello. Feel better, Curtis. Curtis, listen, I met you in college, boy, when you were campaigning with Vicky Palladino. Matter of fact, we walked the streets together. And uh, College Point right now is a disaster area because of the construction going on. It is. And it is. I've never, I've never, Richie, I've never, ever before seen a first world country that has been so destroyed by ripping up the streets, putting in sewers, construction. And because, you see, College Point is out of sight, out of mind. Uh, the mayor doesn't care about it. The previous mayor doesn't care about it. And uh, the only thing you can do is continue to make noise, continue to speak up, and be like hemorrhoids uh, on the political process because it's the only way you're going to get any attention there. Well, listen, Curtis, I'm on the Board of Trade, and when we walk down the streets with you and Vicky Palladino, I'm one of the merchants there, and uh, we contributed to uh, the Curtis Lee Mayor Fund. And I remember Vicky Palladino comes running up as soon as we handed you for your uh, campaign and uh, asking for donations and introducing ourselves. We called Vicky Palladino, not even the uh, courtesy of a return phone call. Well, I tell you what, you uh, stay on the line, Richie. Uh, if you can, uh, where's... Uh Oh, Avery, Avery, if you can, write out Richie's number uh, for me. Uh, I'll follow up on that. I'm in College Point often. We have some cat colonies there that we take care of, some feral cats. It's right near the water. A lot of rats, a lot of mice. That's why the feral cats are so important. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just about 24 hours, we'll be back with the funniest one hour in all of uh, talk radio. As Avery does the the Frank Morano rap, he's now contemplating whether he'll do it two mornings, Saturday morning and then again on Sunday morning. Uh, He'll determine if there's enough material. But knowing that Stonad Frank Morano, he's like the gift that keeps giving. He doesn't even know what he's saying is so funny, the way uh, Avery cuts it up. And then for all of you, you know, you're going to have your watch parties. We weren't invited to Frank Morano's watch party. Man, we never get invited out there, right? But we'll see. I have a feeling that game is going to end early. And then you'll be listening to all of us right here on WABC.